0: You asked for it, folks. Your dreams have come true. The letters, the emails, the texts, they've paid off. We're finally doing it. The thing that everyone won't stop asking us for. Number one, the two things, actually, that the fans have been clamoring for. Number one, we've got Joe. Hey, how's everybody doing? Joe who? Just Just Joe. Any Joe. But we're talking about the seminal, beloved, cult classic, a movie that expresses, Joe was telling us off mic, his view of the Asian peoples. (laughs) He's like, if you want to (laughs) understand Asians, then you got to watch this film. This is why it's one of his favorite films. Come to think of it, I'm glad you
1: didn't say my last name so I could be (laughs) let off the hook of anything you just claimed. I talked to my friend
2: Jason Chin, who's Chinese, about this movie, and Mm -hmm. he definitely said, When he watched this movie, he never felt more represented. Well, exactly. He also said that he wanted to throw up when he was done. Right. But those two are probably not related at all.
0: Well, now Jason's a muscular kind of buffoon, so he felt represented (laughs) by Kurt Russell. That's right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) By Jack Burton. Hey, folks, this is Sanity at the Movies. I am Nathan, your host. We've got the captain right there, Captain Benjamin Sulzer. Hello. A pastor. And we've got our greatest living theologian, Jake Menzel. (laughs) Hey, what's up? I don't know what he's doing here, but <laughs> <laughs> and we do have our good friend Joe. Let me explain the concept of Joe. So they, well, not Nathan, the have you forgotten
1: <laughs> my last name? Because I think you've forgotten my last name.
0: <laughs> he's Joe Beck. I was, of course, kidding about the Asian stuff. Uh, Joe, actually, you're in really good company. You don't have to worry, Ben. You were just telling me the other day your favorite letter is K.
3: That's right. You like to say it three times in a row, kind of a Beetlejuice <laughs> thing. I do. Uh, candy, candy, candy. I think that's what I usually say. Yeah. The candy that's what, man. Yeah, yeah, when I, I'm wearing my white hoodie that my wife got me for Christmas. Right, you got a white hoodie. You like to go out in the night and uh, do some things with some friends. I like to buy candy. Candy, candy, candy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Joe's not a racist. I don't want to paint him that way. The important thing... Is Jake will explain the concept of Joe, and then yeah, Joe will I'll explain. Do, do that but the reason that Joe is here is because we are trying something new on this podcast. Where, what should we call this? It's where
1: you forget someone's last name and accuse them of racism. Yeah, is that the, the no? That's the new not concept. new. <laughs> I've like pro- probably done
0: that before. So <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we. What we are going to do is we are going to. If you want. And you can pay for it. Now, Joe actually, Joe's paid for it. In if friendship. you want to be treated like Joe, <laughs> right. this is
2: something we're offering for you to pay for. <laughs> right. This is,
0: we're sort of, we're test driving this idea, taking it around the block. So we haven't actually set up like a Patreon level reward thing, but we thought if people, if someone wants to pay the right amount, I don't think we've even settled on a price for this. But I
2: think I we might've, but I think we didn't write it down. Yeah, so.
0: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to come on, And you want to talk about one of your favorite films with us and do an episode. Now you have to be prepared to run with the big boys like Joe is today. But if that sounds fun to you, then you can do that. So I think we're going to have Joe on and...
2: We have a couple other guys uh, that we have lined up. And this is just proof of concept. This is, okay, let's see. Let's test drive it. Let's see if it works. Let's see if it can be super fun. So if you got any kind of movie that you just think would be fun to talk about on this show with us and you like how this works, right. then that's something that we're going to add in as a Patreon reward level.
0: Yep. Maybe you're like, the guys will are never going to talk about... What's a movie that people want us to talk about? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. The Secret of the Ooze, yeah. And you're but right. But that's my favorite movie. Yeah.
2: And it would be hilarious to, or fun to talk about that. And I want to come on and get called a racist for 10 minutes.
0: No, I'm not promising I'm going to call everyone a racist. I'm not saying that Joe's a racist. He had some interesting ideas, (laughs) and
1: we listened. Well, to assist you all, you did mention that if you can't afford the monetary price, you can pay with your reputation.
0: Right. That's right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Listen, we're talking big trouble in Little China. There's a big thing, and there's a little thing in this movie. And we're going to talk about both of them. We're going to talk about everything. This is a cult classic. This is a movie that I am very happy to talk about. It gives us a chance to talk about John Carpenter, a great filmmaker. And I don't know, we'll see where everybody lands on the podcast. Where should, maybe we should start with some baggage so we can understand why, who Joe is. I guess we should just start with, should we say who Joe is? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So who's Joe?
2: So back in high school, and maybe Joe will have to help me out with this. Back in high school, I became a Christian somewhere around my junior or senior year of high school. Around the time I was coming to faith, I walked into a hardware store to apply for a job. And Joe was there, working, and I knew Joe a little bit from school. We weren't on the best of terms, because I had spent a lot of time making fun of him. And Joe, out of the blue, invited me to go to Bluesfest. And I said, yeah. And we went, we hung out, we hit it off, and we became best friends. We spent a lot of time growing together, working through things, just like theologically. And we were just young, immature dudes in our faith. I started going to church with Joe, started getting involved in different things. And so early on through the end of high school and through college, we were just best friends. It's one of those friendships, relationships that God gives you that's formative, shapes a lot of your life and faith. And and then things happen. You have families, you move across the country, and there's distance. But every time we get together and hang out, it's like we pick up right where we left off. And so it's been sweet and cool. And so... Joe's been all over the place, Tennessee, Maryland, North Carolina, working in different PCA churches as youth minister and music minister. We've stayed in touch, and he's had me out to do things at various churches. Now he's back in town, and he had this idea. And actually, I think this whole reward-level idea came about because Joe was like, hey, I'd love to come on and talk about this. I think it could be a lot of fun. And then we got to talking about it, and we're like, "Yeah, that could be a lot of fun. It could be cool, and this could be something that we could do with other people." We got to be sure that it works and that it's fun and that sort of thing. But let's give it a test drive. So here we are, doing that. So
1: yeah, I think. Well, I think you summed it up good. Yeah, I think we had what two summers in a school year hanging out. Yeah, as best friends, and really twenty years later, just certain times they can be dense in terms of meaning. You know, mm-hmm. they don't have to be like these lifelong type things, but we really had what summer after junior year, yep. senior year, summer after. Yeah. Senior year, alienating a lot of people, and yep. But you know, growing close, just kind of found each other at the right time, and so I was kind of coming into myself too. Jake wasn't always super nice as a freshman, but I was easy to—I was an easy target. I was kind of a jerk. So yeah, but him and I—we kind of found Jesus around the same time, and had a lot of life anger I think to work through, a lot of angst that we kind of understood each other on, and yeah, and grew through all that. And yeah, and I really with big trouble in Little China wanted to. I enjoyed the thought of hitting Jake with a movie that he had never seen before, mm-hmm. that I thought would take him off guard. And then when I realized you two had both seen it, I was like, well, this is perfect. Three of us getting to take Jake off guard with a movie that <laughs> there's nothing else like this movie that existed before or since. can you confirm. And just wanted to get your gut thoughts on something that, you, <laughs> that I knew you'd never seen that and you'd have no context for. Yeah. <laughs> Success.
0: Success. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited to get into it. And I'm awash with nostalgia for my own high school formative friends, none of whom I care about now. No, actually two of them, I think maybe will be our other test drives for this podcast. And then the other two, I don't even talk to them anymore. But they suck. So <laughs> let's... No, they, they're fine. <laughs> what a day. They chose to be get married instead of being my friend, and I felt rejected because I was a loser. I'm excited to talk about this one. This one should be fun. So let's start with baggage, and because I think what you're knowing, Joe's relationship to this movie and the relationship that everyone brings will certainly inform... Our discussion of it. So let me introduce a segment we call Past Baggage. It doesn't
1: matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. Welcome to Baggage. Joe, what is your relationship to this movie, sir? Well, so my, my father dominated the TV growing mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And he had extremely campy tastes in TV. And so we watched every B-horror movie growing up. He was a huge Star Trek fan. And so we never really got to choose what was on the TV. It was kind of always up to him. Mm-hmm. He was home, what we were going to watch. And we used to joke, he didn't like good movies. He just liked bad movies and bad TV. If it was campy, if it was on the nose, he really enjoyed it. What kind of B-horror movies we we talking? Like, what's what are some titles? Oh, gosh. Stuff I should not have been watching as a kid, probably. Things like all oh, the old like, creep show movies and sure. like, uh, things like that. And any, every sequel, every uh, like sequel your, to everything. Your, your
0: Friday the 13th kind of yeah, stuff.
1: It was almost too mainstream for him, mm-hmm. you know, between... I guess those first Halloween and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street movies, between that and Scream, he had this real downtime for horror movies, mm-hmm. but not for him. He thought all of it was just fantastic. There you go. And so you don't know, say like that. And so all the Star Treks, mm-hmm. Next Generation and D Space Nine and Voyager, he was very obsessed with, like I said, very with camp really a lot. And he passed a couple of years ago. One of the ways that it wasn't the greatest relationship with him, but one of the ways that we can connect with him in some positive ways is finding some of the stuff that he would have us watch all the time. And go back to them and realize, okay, so some of this was okay. Some of this mm-hmm. is actually pretty pretty clever, pretty good. And some of this is pretty enjoyable. And of all of those, I'd say Big Trouble in Little China is the one movie that I really go back that we had to watch a thousand times. And I'm like, this is actually really clever and really funny. And even the misrepresentation, there's, there, I think there's a point to it. Mm-hmm. You know, which you were seeing all of this through, through Jack Burton, that lead character's eyes, played by Kurt Russell. And he doesn't understand anything, right? but he thinks he does. And I think that the misrepresentation there is, that's part of it. Right. Is it, we're seeing the world through this guy's eyes, who is so confident, undeservedly. Right. And um, as I've gotten older, this movie is just, when you're a kid, there's the kung fu fight scenes it's great, but as I've gotten older, I've just come to really love the dialogue and some of the subtle stuff you don't know, pick up until you're older.
0: Yeah. No, I would, I would agree with that, up to and including the misrepresentation, I think. I mean, at the very least, you could say this movie was made by clever, left-leaning people who weren't just believing all the old chop suey kind of Yeah, and I felt very
2: self-conscious. Yeah. Jack Burton, the white guy who is just going to come through and be the hero. But in this case, he's the hero because he just kind of keeps bumbling through. Well, the way
0: Carpenter described it and the thing that Russell loved is it's a movie about a sidekick who thinks he's the hero. And so actually the hero is Wang, his friend, and he's the sidekick, but he just bumbles through the whole movie assuming he's the hero because he is the white. It's an early uh, meta-textual take on the white savior narrative or something like that. Right. This guy who just because he looks like the hero and assumes he's the hero, and I'll go ahead and give my baggage. The first time I saw this movie, I think I don't remember. I was a teenager. I was confused by that. I did not get it. I, I was like, "What? Why isn't Jack Burton cool? or The, and I think that was actually how a lot of people responded to this movie. They did not get the joke, and I was one of those people. I was just like, I liked Carpenter. I think I'd seen a lot of Carpenter flicks at that point, but this one, I just. I think maybe by the end, in retrospect, I could look back and say, okay, I see what it's doing. But as I watched the movie, I was just confused. This guy looks like the hero. He's kind of the hero. He does actually get to do some heroic stuff. He's not totally without heroic qualities, but then he's knocked out for half of the big action scene at the end and stuff like that that just to whatever age boy I was felt kind of disappointing. But uh, Jake, what's your baggage with?
2: Zero. Zero. I have zero baggage. I don't think... I had even seen a Carpenter film all the way through. I don't think, I'd never seen Big Trouble in Little China. I didn't know anything about the movie. And I don't think I've ever actually watched a single Carpenter film all the way through. Starman?
1: Nope. The first Halloween movie?
2: No, I don't think I've watched it all the way through. I've seen scenes from it or bits and pieces of it like at parties or whatever, but I don't think I've ever actually sat down and watched it. Not missing much. Yeah, well.
0: Now you're missing several classics.
2: The Thing. Never seen it.
0: Kind of a classic. I don't know. I'll, I'll give some context about John Carpenter and talk more about where I, mean, where I, I think he belongs at I'm
2: going to pull up his IMDb, but I'm pretty sure... I didn't fact check this beforehand, but I'm pretty sure I came to this movie without ever having watched a Carpenter movie.
0: Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., any of that? Nothing. Well, while you pull that up, we'll get Ben's baggage.
3: I saw this 20 years ago. So what would I have been? Like 19 or something or 20? Why did I watch it? Maybe it wasn't that long ago. I feel like I read about it, and gotten curious. I'd seen a couple Carpenter movies already. I'd seen Starman. This was before I realized it was Carpenter. I was probably a young teenager seeing that. And then I saw The Thing with my dad, who liked that movie a lot. And <laughs> I was like, this movie is really cool. And really gross. I wasn't a horror guy ever. We weren't a horror-watching family, like, ever. So, But the l- l- gore was acceptable if it was science fiction. So you got your predator, you got your alien. like That stuff was okay. And so The Thing kind of fell into that, so I could kind of handle that. But uh, yeah, I thought The Thing was pretty great. I thought Kurt Russell was really cool. I was curious enough at some point to check out Escape from New York. Kurt Russell's really cool in that. That's not that much fun. Now to go back to? Yeah, that movie kind of weirdly doesn't hold up for me either. But. I have
2: seen one John Carpenter film. Uh, Memoirs
0: of an Invisible Man. That's exactly right. No, no. never seen that one.
2: <laughs> How did you, how'd you pull that? I was going to make you guess. You went right to it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Just,
0: you had a smile on your face. I was like, what's the lamest John Carpenter <laughs> oh, film? Oh, man. That's the one.
2: But what, I, I totally forgot that was even a movie.
0: Joe, what Car- John Carpenter films have you seen uh, of
1: the classics? Just thinking Memoirs of an Invisible Man, that's my chase. first two years Chevy of high school. Chase, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish uh, <no>, I had <laughs> <was> a, <laughs> a drum. No, I uh, really, I don't have any stomach for gore. It's mm-hmm. funny, my wife, who is <laughs> the most wholesome person I know, loves horror movies though. Mm-hmm. And it stresses me out because every Halloween I oblige her a couple of horror movies. Oh man. I really get too invested and too stressed out. Mm-hmm. And there is a level of Camp and you all are my psychologist. It, m- it might just be because I had to watch this stuff so much as a kid, but I can't go back and watch any of it for the most part, mm-hmm. unless I really enjoy it. It just isn't. It doesn't speak to me. I think I enjoy things that are, especially meta textual camp where they're trying. And I feel like John Carpenter tries a lot and didn't hit the mark. Where I watched, I went back and watched Halloween and, and did not like it. Mm-hmm. It's never seen it. Is it because it's you didn't like it? Like it was boring or like it was like it scary, was or? like it was a college student's final project. <laughs> it's in Illinois and there's palm trees in the background. and I don't like that. I don't like that that it's supposed
0: to be Midwest and it feels so California down to the outside lockers at the school. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Or the scene where they're trying to find Michael Myers and he's driving around in a stolen car in a mask right behind them. He pulls Mm up his, he just pulls, takes a left turn behind them where they're looking the wrong direction. And it's like this town of 3000 people and they can't find a guy in a mask driving a stolen car. And the whole thing just seemed really ridiculous. And it seemed very exploitative, Mm -hmm. I thought as well, that there's. The, there's gore and there's nudity and it all feels to me especially exploitative. You know, mm-hmm. there's just no reason for it other than it was made by someone who wanted those things to be in this movie.
0: Yeah, I know. I think John Carpenter would agree with you. Yeah. He was nothing if not, what's the word, cynical, I, I
1: don't know, honest about
0: what he was doing.
1: Yes, all that said, I think Halloween and Big Trouble in Little China might be the only John Carpenter movies I can, I'm sure I've seen more growing up, but I can't remember details of the other ones. I think I've seen most oh, and, of Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. The no, no. The one with Roddy Piper. Oh, sure. They Live. They Live. Yeah, yeah. I've seen lots of They Live. A
0: touchstone for alienated conservatives and liberals these days on your Twitter and your everywhere. I think I've seen most John Carpenter movies. Maybe I've seen all. I don't, I don't think I've seen Memoirs of Invisible Man, but Starman is a nice romantic movie and obviously the classics, your Halloween, your thing, your stuff like that. I have really fond memories of, these, of some of these movies, watching them at sleepovers and stuff like that. I remember watching The Thing with a group of teenage guys and just really enjoy, you know, everybody. There's a famous moment from that movie that's always stuck with me, a gore moment. It's a, shall we say, a surprise amputation scene that's about the most effective jump scare I've ever seen. And it was really fun to be a 14-year-old boy, see that with my friends. So I have nostalgia for those kinds of things.
2: Is Uh, that a movie I should show at Halloween to my... It is
0: incredibly gory. It is very gory. So no, probably not. But uh, it's very, it's a good movie. I mean, it's in, in in your alien's predator sort of genre i'd say it's the equal of alien probably in terms of artistry and actually creating an atmosphere and stuff like that and it's not the kind of gore that bothers me it's very you can see the seams it's practical effects kind of stuff so a lot of it's fun kind of plasticine models covered in goo type stuff which i just enjoy the artistry of but in any case yeah, anybody have any other baggage with Carpenter with they live with or with they live with big trouble, anything?
2: Well, I, I guess I do have other baggage, but it's just contextual. Right. I mean, it's just the eighties. Right. And I think that's worth saying. I think that the I think if you're gonna come to this movie fresh, like I just did, and have any enjoyment or appreciation of it, just having enough sort of Spielberg, Jim Henson, eighties fever dream yes, appreciation, nostalgia will do a lot for you. Yes. And if you don't, you may be out of luck.
0: Yeah, it has got that wonderful John Carpenter Electronica score which Stranger yeah. Things and so many other things are ripping off these days. Yes, yeah, it's, it's
2: got- just, dude captures the vibe in this movie 100% that people are trying to rip off and go for. And so, if you like have a little hankering for that enough that you're willing to explore Stranger Things and stomach it, mm-hmm. then this is like, hey, this ticks that box really neatly and in a fun, bizarre off-beaten sort of way. Yes.
1: I think it really tests your ability to like stuff from that time period, too. Yes. You know, <laughs> like for example, like everyone our age likes the killers, but you know, how many people like the talking heads, right? Mm. It's yeah. kind of the same thing where it's like, you know, people like cherry pick nostalgia, I guess, from something like Stranger Things, but if you go back and get the real vintage. Cherry pick cleaned up and popified versus exactly the legit.
0: The legit, yeah, yeah, like,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. And to the John Carpenter score point, I, I do highly recommend everyone go by, go back and find on YouTube the John Carpenter music video. Yes, it's amazing. For, oh man, it is.
0: A- it's actually a good song. First of all, I think it kind of rules. You're looking at me like that's a crazy take.
1: My brother last night hijacked every Bluetooth speaker in the house, no matter where I was at, and played that song. <laughs> Even in, I was trying to take a shower last night and he played it in the shower through the Bluetooth speaker, so I could not avoid that song last night and so
0: so it is such a new it's it's the theme music that you hear in the movie so it's the it's the But it's John Carpenter himself singing
1: and he's doing this really kind of
0: talking heads kind of thing it's like
1: a Jim Morrison talking heads thing it's so weird
0: yeah it's cool he's got a really deep voice and then it's Nick Castle who played The Shape he played Michael Byers he's called The Shape in the first movie and it's somebody else I don't know it's three of these guys that are known for other things and they're just jamming out to and it's it's got these ridiculous lyrics.
1: Big trouble in little China. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's the worst song in music video I've ever seen. Before. Um,
0: <laughs> I loved it. I love any song. I've said this on podcasts before. I love any song that is completely inapplicable to any other situation. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. You don't have to be in a Western to know what that song's about. But you l- l- go to Carousel, the other musical by Oscar Hammerstein, Hammerstein, whatever. And they've got the song... Oh, what a beautiful clam bake. It's been a great, great clam bake. And I love that song because it can't possibly be a metaphor for anything. It's just a song about clam bakes. <laughs> and another example would be the theme song from the Goonies, the Cyndi Lauper song, Goonies Are Gonna Get It Done or something. I forget what it is, but it's like that song cannot be about anything. Just,
1: Goonies just wanna have fun. Yeah, I think yeah, it b- basically.
0: But unless you're a Goonie, that song does not apply to you. And there are only five Goonies, as far as I'm concerned, or however many there are but i love songs that are like dorkily the bo- the here's one more example and i'll be done the the movie The Ninja Rap from Teenage Mutant yes, Ninja, Media, that's great ninja Turtles 2. Yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing
2: example.
0: <laughs> I was going to say the movie Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, that wonderful Edward Zwick film. At the end it's got a rap. I forget who it was. But they it, all dance and they go go ninja, go, go ninja, ninja, go. go yeah, it's no, yeah. amazing. <laughs> but Blood Diamond actually has a rapper rapping about blood diamonds over the He's like you need the diamonds but you got the blood shed and it's like, man, this is a really specific subject for a cool rap song, but I guess if you're gonna have a rap song for Blood Diamond, but why couldn't it be like a generic rap song about love or desire? Like that's actually the way to write one of the songs.
2: Anyway, the actually the Spider Verse stuff they do a all lot that stuff. Of that it's
0: all
3: like they about being Spider Man.
4: Yeah.
0: yeah, I guess rap as a genre is allowed to be more cult. Like I can actually extrapolate a metaphor for myself out of Spider Man somehow. So
2: yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. It's one of those places where. You can take it out of that context and it's still kind and of, and we're used to doing it because yeah.
0: Eminem is like, my stepdad Evan, he beat me with a wrench, and you're like, yeah, that sums up <laughs> the human experience <laughs> and stuff,
1: stuff well, like yeah, it. I mean, there is Kendrick Lamar did the Black Panther soundtrack, and it's very mainstream at the same time and applicable. But yeah. he's, I mean, there's he's one of those top five type guys that can do both. Yeah, it mainstream takes a and lot to
2: be able yeah. to straddle both those lines in a I way, think, way that yeah, I, don't I think, think so. John Carpenter was doing. In yeah,
0: the I mean movies. a lame example of somebody who can do that is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like all his songs are so specific to the moment in the movie or in the in Hamilton, but they all work as kind of pop ballads that you can enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, too. I just
1: can't begrudge anyone who's not Lin-Manuel Miranda or Kendrick Lamar of an inability to I can't imagine how hard that is to pull off.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it it is impossible. But John Carpenter, as we said, did not pull it off with The Big Trouble in Little Ch- China soundtrack. I have thoughts about this soundtrack. I don't know. But we'll get to it. First, we need a little context. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Thank you, John Houston, Best voice in all of cinema. Ben, I think you looked up some of Joe's favorite themes, like xenophobia and yellow the yellow peril, and stuff like that. I'm, We're I'm, still, it's
2: okay. I'm it's sorry. Okay. I'll
0: stop. I mean, so long as people, everyone knows you're joking, people will feel bad.
3: Yeah, I'm I don't joking. have a
1: Twitter, by the way, so no one looked Wink. for me. No, no, no. Emphasis
3: um, on the
0: Joe and joking. <laughs> the Joe, yeah, we really put the Joe in joke. <laughs> Great moments in podcasting <laughs> with Ben Sulcer. <laughs> I'm here no, no, no. For. Joe is not a virulent racist, folks. I, I want you all to know that. Be very clear. And this is the part where I come in with a little... I'm waiting for you to say, end? well, <laughs> he's
1: not virulent at all. No, no,
0: no. He, he's, he's a subtle... No, Joe's not a racist. I think he had some interesting ideas about <laughs> about, about the races. No, so... Uh, <laughs>
4: Mm. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> this is what you get if you want to pay to be on this podcast
0: <laughs> this is what oh, you get. Man. joe you're among friends you're in good company that's what i'm trying to tell you here ben you were saying you've got a boy right right and you said you're really proud of him you want him to grow up you, yep. you want him to be proud of himself you, yeah you just want to raise a proud boy that's right And Jake, you were telling me, you're interested in the subject of medicine and uh, fitness and stuff like that. You're a fitness freak. That's right. And you like, this book, I think it's a medical book, My Cough, I think, was it? You said it
2: was a really great book. Yeah, it's a really great book about about your uh, cough.
0: (laughs) 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 Listen, folks, Joe is not a racist. No one on this podcast is a racist. We're saying these things for silly humor. I want that to be very clear there is no race here except for ben stick him on a boat solzer um so, so, so.
3: <laughs> as my friends know me
1: ben you had some context you're gonna provide right
3: well so big trouble in little china it's got a villain who is sort of a takeoff of fu manchu so starting with him i'm gonna give a little context for the kind of stuff this movie is playing with fu manchu is a stereotypical Chinese villain. I mean, or he became the basis for a lot of stereotypical Chinese villains, at least for white people like us. He was created by the English novelist Sax Romer, which is a pen name for some reason, of Arthur Ward. So this guy, Arthur Ward, lived in the late 19th century, no, early 20th. Stop that's, right that's an interesting question. Joe, 20th. if your name was Arthur
0: Ward, would you change it to Sax Romer as your pen name? Because I think
1: Arthur Ward's kind of a cool name. I think I'd be, uh, go by Artie Ward and be a sports writer. Artie Ward, yeah. <laughs> Artie Ward.
0: <laughs> Ward, on the beat.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's pretty great. Like well, it. that's good time. I mean,
2: that's the right time period too, right? Late 19th, early 20th century? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. perfect. That's who, exactly who you want covering the Yankees. Yeah, Artie Ward is, is uh, doing, okay. following
3: Babe Ruth around. Babe Ruth, yeah. There you go. So, Romer created the, his great character Fu Manchu before World War I. And he's Romer's kind of downstream of Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle. And so he likes all this pulpy stuff, likes to integrate gothic elements a little bit, at least. He wrote lots of, he wrote lots of detective stories. My favorite detective name that he came up with was Morris Claw, a cult detective. <laughs> and that's pretty great. I'd like to read some Morris, Morris Claw. Morris Occult. Claw. But he, he wrote 13 Fu Manchu novels, and he was playing off what we might generously call superstitious fears about Orientals, <laughs> or so-called, and specifically, Chinese. So Fu Manchu is this creepy, evil genius who's plotting to take over the world. He wants to restore glory to the Chinese empire. He wants it to have dominion. He also just wants to take over the world. And he comes up with all these plots to steal and kill and whatever on his way to doing that. And he, so he, he he doesn't really like guns. What he likes is he likes to poison. He likes to torture. He likes to hire guys with knives to go after our heroes.
0: So I've, I've read some Fu Manchu novels. I loved them, actually. They're quite fun if you can put up with a lot of virulent racism. But <laughs> but it's always kind of the most extreme stuff that people make, that like Austin Powers made fun of the James Bond movies for. It's like
3: right. Fu Manchu
0: locks right. the heroes in a basement with poisonous mushrooms. We've all and, seen this all the time. Yeah. Like
3: James Bond movies, the Batman serial, Yeah, <laughs> also spoof this kind of thing. But it's the silliest yeah. stuff.
0: It's like the razor machine or the poisonous mushrooms or he would hire tuggy cultists to strangle people. Like he, right. was, he was just always doing stuff like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and in in the novels, he's kind of like the epitome of what Chinese people are like, generally, in their evil and there's so you've got the racist stuff, tensions of the time feeding, and you've also got a pseudoscientific tool that was employed to sort of help the racist stuff along, especially in these novels. And that was the study of physiognomy, which is which is a weird science I'll talk about a little more. But it's about like reading, looking at people's faces and their forms and saying where do you fall? What's your character? Well, you have slanty eyes. And that, mean, that makes you evil. Like that kind of thing, basically, is what we're talking about. And You have a
2: big forehead. That makes you a genius.
3: That makes you a genius. Or maybe if it's a sloping forehead, it makes you a criminal. And so in the novels, Romer's always, Romer, Romer, is always referring to the writings of a guy named Bayard Taylor. who Bayard Taylor, I, you've never heard of him, right, Nathan? No. Okay, well, he was... I've never heard of him either, but he was a contemporary of Mark Twain. And at the time, this guy was a celebrity. He was a celebrity. He was a diplomat. He was a best-selling novelist. He was a best-selling poet, a popular poet. He was a diplomat of Russia and Prussia. No one thinks of him as a good novelist or poet now. But man, he was read, and he would say things, and he would use the science of physiognomy, and he would say things in what he wrote, quote, Chinese are morally the most debased people on the face of the earth. (laughs) Quote: A Chinese city is the greatest of all abominations. Here's one more. Quote: Deeps on deeps of depravity, so shocking and horrible in the Chinese that their character cannot even be hinted. And so, in the Fu Manchu stories, the heroes will actually refer to Bayard's writings by name as though they're science. And so, I just let me talk about before we get to the broader context, physiognomy, which has been around since Aristotle. It's been in and out of favor, including academic favor, including political favor. It's been in and out of use. And so a lot of the time it's been bought into. Like, yeah, of course you can tell what people are like by the kind of features they have and you can make judgments and we should. And it'll shock no one to know that the founder of eugenics, Sir Francis Galton, he was a fan of physiognomy. That's very strange. No, it's not because it identifies bad genetic strains, slanty eyes, clearly an evil genetic strain. You've also got, there's this famous Italian criminologist named Cesare Lombroso. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Sorry. (laughs) But was he really Italian? (laughs) He's very French. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In a non stereotypical way. He he, he lived close to that famous Italian quote. (laughs) (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha ha.
3: He lived close to, there's no racism on this podcast, folks. And he said the criminal traits showed up in the face and form of a man. So, like I was just like, the low, sloping forehead, the high cheekbones flattened or upturned nose, handle-shaped ears, hard, shifty eyes, on and on and on. And this guy was listened to for a time. The subset of physiognomy, a lot of our listeners may have heard of phrenology, which is like you feel your skull or hopefully someone else's skull, and you're like, oh, you're a greedy man. And now you've got this big bump on the back in, in your skull, and that tells me that you think a lot about Seafood, whatever it is. Phenology is also discredited.
1: <laughs> you know? I, I, would, I would say this, though. I think that in the broader context of Big Trouble in Little China and for today, that physiognomy has rightfully fallen out of favor, but we do right. it all the time. Right. Yes. yeah. And so I think what you've got yeah. in this movie is it would never admit to any of this, right? And I don't know that any of us admit to ourselves we're doing this, but we do it all the time. Right. right? And you know, for example, I, yeah. I grew up dirt poor, and so I've got a gap in my teeth. mm mm-hmm. When people look at somebody who's got missing teeth or a gap in their teeth or whatever, there's physiognomy that goes on right. there. You make assumptions. You're making assumptions you about that person's upbringing. And so you do. I think what this movie does bring up, rightfully, I think it does a good job of it in a very funny way without just coming out and saying it, is that even though a lot of these Fu Manchu type characterizations, we don't talk about it anymore, but it's all still there in a lot of ways too. And so even if it's more subtle, a lot of that judgment based on how someone looks still definitely occurs.
0: Right. Right. If the doorbell rings in the middle of the night and my wife looks out the porthole? What's the little thing called? The,
2: the porthole. Port My
0: wife looks we are on a submarine. I don't know if you guys do that. Door brings in the middle of the night. She looks through the periscope. Yeah, she thing. looks through the periscope and she sees, I won't even say it, but if she sees someone not of the same race as her. She sees a, a large man mm-hmm. of any sort, right? Yeah. As and, opposed to a diminutive woman. Yeah, she's going to make a judgment.
3: If she sees a large black man, she's going to make a judgment and yeah, we go yeah. from there. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Well, and it's complicated because none of us would say that well, someone's face doesn't tell you anything about their character or what they're like. That's also dumb. But drawing the line well is hard, takes
1: discernment, and we're all subject to rush judgments on right. Other people. Right, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, obviously, well, as Christians, obviously, any sort of this, I can't even think of how you say the word now, the science word. Physiognomy. Physiognomy based on yeah. sort of racial. Obviously, God calls us something better than that. Yeah. But I think that movies like this, obviously, coming at racial harmony from a different perspective, mm-hmm. I think. But I think it does rightfully get at... The idea that this stuff is still super ingrained in us. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, definitely. Just one more note on Sax (laughs) Romer. Sorry, Sax Romer. Sax Romer. I know. What a great pen name. (laughs) I could not believe this, but he died in 1959 at the age of 76 due to an outbreak of something you'll never guess. Yellow fever. (laughs) no. Unless that <laughs> Asian Asian flu,
4: <laughs>
3: I thought that was amazing. So is Jake uh, actually the big racist? Uh, yeah, I think, I think he you is. Set him up. But. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Uh, I could not believe that. Rest I, your soul, Sax
1: Romer. Serves you right. <laughs> yeah, you got, you got oh, him. It, it really does. <laughs> got
3: him. Serves you right. It really does. I. So just just it was so, a just. A plot. So, yeah, it was a plot. Well, Sax Romer himself said, let me see, where did I put this quote? I've put it further down. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's what Romer said about all his work later in life. I made my name on China because I know nothing about the Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how he pawned it all off. He, in fact, he said that the reason he even started writing these novels with a Chinese villain, with Fu Manchu, was because he consulted his Ouija board. How should I make my fortune? And the Ouija board came back. China man. Well, <laughs> that was his claim about all this. So yeah, just a, just a word about, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous, right? Invest in China. <laughs> it's like he's his own pulp novel or something. So uh, just a word about the broader stuff, the yellow peril stuff. Bayard, the guy I was talking about who was so popular, who we've forgotten, who was a virulent racist. He was just kind of a man of his times. Maybe he was extraordinarily stupid and hateful. I don't know. But racism against the Chinese was all over. There's a book I saw that, after researching this stuff, I wanted to read. I read about it a little. It's called The Yellow Peril, Dr. Fu Manchu and the Rise of Chinaphobia. It's mainly about Britain, but it looks pretty cool. So, yellow peril is a term like red scare or red menace. We use that to describe communists, especially the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But yellow peril has a wider net because it's a racist epithet for not just Chinese people, but by extension, kind of all peoples of the East, maybe excepting Russia. And it got traction in the late 19th century, especially when Chinese immigrants were coming in en masse to the U.S. and Canada and Australia, and they would work for less money than their native counterparts. And so people felt undercut, and they were like, these Chinese people are going to steal our economy, they're going to steal our country. The term yellow peril actually comes from a German diplomat who was advising Kaiser Wilhelm II (laughs) that he needed to do some colonizing in China. That is strange. Fascism, fascism coming from Germany. So later on, <laughs> Russia. <laughs> racist. I, I, I just, I, it's, it, it's. Why are you racist
2: against Germans, Ben? I, I'm not. I, ben, I sh- but I love I have the German, German I love heritage. I, I and I have feel German personally heritage.
0: <laughs> I have Chinese. Me too. Yeah, some of my best friends I'm are Chinese.
3: <laughs> Chinese-German. <laughs> so, it, it, okay. Here's a nice telling quote from, when is this? From 1854. So, from the U.S., from the New York Daily Tribune, the writer, editor, Horace Greeley. Is he a name you guys know? Yeah, I do know that. I name. thought you would. Yeah, he's famous, but I don't know what for. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I yeah. don't know the name. But here he is commenting on Chinese immigrants to California. But of the remainder, what can be said? They are, for the most part, an industrious people, forbearing and patient of injury, quiet and peaceable in their habits. Say this, and you have said all good that can be said of (laughs) that. They are uncivilized, unclean, and filthy beyond all conception, without any of the higher domestic or social relations, lustful and sensual in their dispositions. Every female is a prostitute of the basest order. The first words of English that they learn are terms of obscenity or profanity, and beyond this, they care to learn no more. So that that's kind of his considered and measured take <laughs> on Chinese immigrants to California. <laughs> and in fact, again, this is also just of a piece because all over the Western world, governments were promoting the idea that the white race, so-called, especially as time went on, the white race, so-called, and the yellow race, so-called, were at war to see who would be master of the world. I guess the narrative hasn't changed, right? Because <laughs> today we feel the same way about China. We're just more politically correct in the way that we express that. And so this idea of who will be master of the world and we're in a race is actually, I'm almost paraphrasing this quote from a 1911 British article called, The Chinese in England, a growing national problem that was being read, passed around to British government officials at the time. Okay, so that was 1911. Let me drop back a few years. The Boxer Rebellion in China happens late 1899 through 1901. So people are like, you see, you see? Because the, this is a big trouble, a big problem. Because the Boxers are this anti-colonial, anti-Western movement that rises up, and people are like, they hate us, they're going to kill us. Really, what the Boxers did more of was killing Chinese Christians, <laughs> because they'd been Westernized, you see, and they needed to die. And so that this was suppressed by the West. But sex, this is all to say, sex rumor has loads of tension to play with, just tons of tension to cash in on when he writes his first Fu Manchu story in 1912 and he was very financially (laughs) successful (laughs) and so obviously all of these stereotypes and this kind of sense of well now we can play with this pulpy stuff feeds into big trouble in little china
1: i think that's a great setup to this very fun schlocky action adventure pulp film (laughs) that we're going to talk about (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's interesting to note that a bunch of white guys
0: played Fu Manchu through the 20th century. Christopher Lee had a run mm-hmm. as Fu Manchu in the 60s. Boris Karloff played a really good Fu Manchu in the 1930s in a very sadistic 1936 film, I think it was. I didn't really look this up, but yeah. So good old Fu Manchu. Mm-hmm. He gave us the name for a cool mustache at the very least. Well, it keeps, yes, he keeps on going with John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Yes. Right? With Amazing. a Fu Manchu. Amazing.
1: Yeah, 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 not only yeah. get into the politics of who's allowed to play who, but I mean, but there's... There is a line somewhere. In, in situations somewhere, like that, there's there's something can, going on that we wicked. can
0: be on the other side of the line from John Wayne playing Genghis yeah, Khan. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or, I or, think or, or, that
1: yeah, there's obviously something wicked going on in, <laughs> in only trusting white actors to play these roles. So yeah, some of the what
0: movie did we watch? Oh, what's it called? The Indian adventure movie. Uh, oh, oh,
1: the one, the Cary Grant
2: one. The Cary uh, Grant uh, Gunga Din, Gunga Din, where it's Gung-a-Din.
0: just Gunga Din, Gunga Din, good job, Din, where it's just a oh, bunch my. of white guys and like Italian guys in brownface playing the, the Indian bad guys. I do. So the thing I want to say about this, I do miss, oh man, okay, so here's the sentence I was going to say, but this sounds terrible. I was going to say, I do miss a certain ethnocentrism in our entertainment. That just sounds like I'm one of these weird Christian kinists or something like that. But what what I miss in your modern Disney films, for example, what I think I will probably miss in this new Indiana Jones movie is the idea that as a member of one culture, I am allowed to be fascinated or frightened or repulsed or just interested or intrigued by the attributes of another culture. Like somehow tolerance has become the idea that every culture is equal. And so we kind of just shave off what's fascinating or frightening or interesting about other cultures. It just becomes homogenized. We reviewed the new Guy Ritchie Aladdin movie a few years ago. And they shave off a lot of the stereotyping, the sword swallowing type stuff from the animated Disney movie. But they also shave off a sense of
2: wonder the wonder yeah.
0: the exotic east and sort of old ancient arabian culture and i think there's a way to not be a racist but also read the arabian nights just to take that example and say man this is weird and what a crazy culture and what an evil culture with all these with all this demon rape stuff that's in the original text it's not that th- there's a way to say a certain culture has these attributes even has these bad attributes without saying that every person from that culture is bad, like without being the Horace Greeley quote right, or whatever it was. Right. And I feel like today, I- in sort of liberal filmmaking, we're so hamstrung, so afraid that we're, we're not even allowed to sometimes acknowledge what's interesting about a culture. Like, y- even something like what was the Marvel movie with the Chinese kind of stuff? Um, Shang-Chi. Chi. Shang-Chi. It's like there's a little bit of that flavor of, at the very beginning with the guy meeting the Maiden and they have this kind mm-hmm. of uh, Wuxia fight in the forest. And there's a little Probably bit one of the
2: best scenes in any recent Marvel movie right. that I can think of.
0: Yeah. But then the rest of the movie just kind of feels, there's some good scenes, there's some good action scenes, but it feels kind of flat. It's like we're not actually engaging with what's different about these people all that much or what's interesting about these people all that much. So uh, hopefully I said that in a way
1: that doesn't sound- I think, I think what I'm gathering from what you're saying, I think the New Testament is really, as the Holy Spirit's inspiring this writing, really careful to not turn Christianity into this homogenous cultural thing. Yes. That the command is, for example, be modest. Well, what does that mean? Well, it it means different things in different places. There's context for these things. And it's one of the beautiful things I think about Christianity is that it can go to India and look like India, go to a country in Africa, you know, like the. Central African Republic, and it's going to look like the CAR and maintain some of that. And you can see the beauty of it. And, and part of the contribution of every tribe, tongue, and nation is that you you maintain the beauty of how God created those cultures. It refines them. It doesn't do away with them. Right. It, and it I think redeems them. It, it takes what's exactly, good. Exactly, yeah. It
2: amplifies what's good, and it destroys what's bad. Exactly. And so it reforms the culture, and everybody's got something to bring
1: to the table. Exactly. And we can learn from each other that way, too. Like when I watched an Olympic ceremony, I want it to be of that Culture of that country. I want it to feel foreign to me. I don't want them to do something that's broadly appealing. I want to feel like I'm a guest in an embassy. I'm a guest in a foreign country. I want to feel that way.
0: But there's a lot of thinkers that would actually say your that desire is like who are you to stand from your white guy position and judge that to be interesting? Like they would actually condemn you for finding fascination just in that culture being different because it's not different to them. I mean, I know what I'm saying sounds stupid. Sounds so stupid, I can hardly articulate it. But you see these kinds of think pieces all the time. Travel writing as a genre is actually condemned in in certain fairly mainstream publications these days because
2: to point out anything interesting, right. unique, or exotic about a particular place or culture is to act like it's not normative, and so it's intrinsic racism. Right, and I think.
0: Movies are more interesting. You don't want to be racist, again, but you want some ethnocentrism. Like, I want a movie that says, oh, this is how this stuff looks to a white guy. Now let's engage with it in a three-dimensional, interesting way. But as a white guy, I appreciate having movies where I have an entry point. And then I like watching- Foreign I, films. Yeah, f- foreign films. I like watching a Japanese movie. I even like it when- they show me America from their point of view. And it's always, especially in the kind of action, schlocky movies I watch, it's always the stupidest stereotype. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm the American, I love guns. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, I'm just a boorish, vulgar, you know, it's Jackie Chan and Rumble in the Bronx just surrounded by all this like urban decay and sort of Mad Max like gang violence. and it's, it's like, oh, that's what he thinks New York or wherever it is, is. I guess what I'm saying is, if my only choices are we all get to sort of trade in ridiculous stereotypes or we hope homogenize everything, shave off all the rough edges and aren't even allowed to have any interest in another culture, then I would gladly go back to the 80s and take a little bit of
1: racial stereotyping on both directions with good humor like this movie. How could you even make a movie like this, right, about a a white guy who who doesn't want to learn anything without making him a fish out of water right? and making it look ridiculous. How was a comedian recently said that uh, the greatest ally to uh, the fight against racism against black Americans is uh, white actors willing to play racists in movies. Right. You know (laughs) that uh, he's like, cause you know, no one talks to them at lunch because they have to say awful things, but they have to play that character. Mm -hmm. There has to be, there has to be a difference. You can't broaden every character or you can't get to the heart of moving beyond these things. And and people can learn
2: something when a Chinese filmmaker stereotypes America or a German filmmaker or a French filmmaker or a Japanese filmmaker stereotypes America or Americans. You learn something about Americans. You learn something about how people see Americans. And it may be uncomfortable, but there's always some truth in it, even if it feels like offensive or out of place or exaggerated. And that's just part of the value of of a sort of ethnocentric filmmaking. Is like, hey, we get to actually have some kind of conversation here. Because generalizations are generally true for a reason. An outsider's sort of skewed or hyperbolic perspective has some truth to it that informs how you think of yourself.
1: It's a, you know, the word ethnocentric is almost, it's the wrong word. It's ethnodiverse, really, because there's actual ethnicities that right. appear in movies. And I don't think you can be a humble friend or a learner or engage in the beauty of another culture if your first thought is they're just like me. So if that's your first thought, mm-hmm. yeah. then you're not learning anything and you're not really a friend to them. If the only reason you're someone's friend is because of what you have in common and not because of how they're different and yeah. how you love the differences in them, how you're trying to learn from them, that's not real friendship. That's narcissism. Yep. And, and that's,
2: that's what, that's what like- I only. I'm only capable of loving the me that I see in you. Exactly. And
0: I think you've just described every modern Disney remake. They always have like a bunch of black people in the background, like the Little Mermaid thing. What they do is they get a bunch of races, they portray a different race, and they actually have no diversity because they say every character is just a white character. Every character just behaves the way we think people should behave.
1: I would For- point out that there are no mermaids, white or black, but... So, I mean, give them a distinct culture. I don't. I don't care if a mermaid is white or black. Personally, I mean, even, even if it's a, a disagree thing, I don't. I don't care about that per se because there's there's no such thing there's as a no mermaid. As a
3: well, but I think what Nathan yep. is saying is that it takes away from the idea of there being such a thing as a mermaid because it feels sort of like it homogenizes it before you even portray it. It's like, well, here are these mermaids, but they're just like all the same, even though they have different skin. Cut. It's like, I don't know. Help me out here.
0: Yeah, it's it, well. It's maybe the Little Mermaid is a bad example. What what is a bad uh, example? The
3: Lord of the Rings TV
1: show. The Lord of the Rings TV the show yeah, or something where, where they yeah, it's like there's yeah.
3: also no elves. Yeah, there's no elves. Well, so
1: true. no, but the, but like there are problematic examples of this, right? And there's good examples of it. Like I like the idea that in Hamilton, the reason you have every race is because these were these white people back then were also immigrants. And so the, having a diverse cast reinforces, really yeah, no, you know, the fact that these are immigrants. And so you know, there's good examples of it as well. Sure. I'm not trying to take the point away from you per se, other than just with all this to say it's hard and and it's important to pick the right battles. I, I try not to personally, anytime a black actor or actress replaces a white actor, actress, I try not to just bristle against it. But look, if in Django Unchained, Leonardo DiCaprio was played by a black man. Yeah. That's a problem. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, for everybody. Right. That's a problem, Right. And so you can't always do it. You cannot always do it or you lose the point of what you're trying to do. So... Yeah, I mean,
0: I think... I've told this story before on the podcast, but Morgan Freeman famously said the role of Hannibal Lecter was up. Silence of the Lambs was the book and they were casting it. And I really wanted to be in the conversation. What a great part. Hannibal Lecter, what a great villain. And I would have been perfect for it. But nobody would think of casting me because I'm a black guy and we can't say a black guy is a cannibalistic serial killer. And so the part goes to a Welshman Anthony Hopkins which is great I mean obviously we're all happy that Anthony Hopkins got that part he was wonderful but when you get to the point where we're all such babies or we assume our audience is such babies that we can't think about giving Morgan Freeman a great villain role
2: we can't give a villain ro- role to a black man that's racist oh mm-hmm. it's racist that's racist so now the black man's in the villain role oh well and so we've swapped it oh well that's racist because now you've got the black man who's the villain and the white guy okay so now Let's make them all black. Okay, so now it's black on black. So that's racist. Right. And it's just, there's just no end to the way that it just eats itself alive. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting.
0: I think, I keep thinking of Temple of Doom as we're talking, which is one of the closest analog films to the one we're talking about, a Mm. underground lair racist (laughs) movie. A Temple of Doom, I would say, does go too far. There are things like the dinner scene that are just, ha ha, that culture is stupid and racist. And we're trading in stereotypes that have nothing to actually do. Like Indian food is delicious. Indian food is not a bunch of monkey brains. Ooh, snakes. I mean, it's that that scene is stupid and just a bad scene in general. But the idea that, the broader idea that you couldn't make that movie today because people are such babies that they couldn't, that that if they see the cult of Kali depicted, they're going to think that's all Indian people and that's your entire view on Indian people. That makes me sad because I'm like, any adult with half a brain can watch that movie, realize that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas do not think that every Indian person worships Kali. It's like Jake was saying about the boorish portrayals of Americans in our films. It does get at something about Indian culture and their love Mm. of death, their love of the demonic. But also, we all understand that they're not all in underground caverns ripping people's hearts out. That's we start with that assumption. And mm-hmm. so to assume we're so stupid that we need a filmmaker to explain it to us is reductive and deprives us of good entertainment. So.
1: Yeah. no, I It's important to have these kinds of conversations, right? The stereotype towards, towards conservative Christians would be that we don't care about these issues. And it's that no, we care very much about these issues. We just want to do it the right way. We want to actually solve it the right way without being condescending towards people that we say they can't handle it. It's like, how about instead of focusing on all these things that don't make a movie better. We just make really good movies, thoughtfully, and then we treat people like adults and we have conversations.
0: Well, as John Carpenter says on the commentary track, it's this, this not like we're suddenly all aware of this stuff now and nobody was thinking of it at the time. People were pr- protesting this movie because of its depiction of Asian stereotypes at the time. And Carpenter's just like, They started protesting before we'd even finished the movie. So I went to all the Chinese and Chinese-American actors and said, like, is there something we're doing wrong? Can we change something? And of course, they were all like, no, this is just a fun movie and we're happy to be here. We're happy to be getting paid. We're happy to be playing these cool action figure type characters. Like, none of us have a, to a man, to a woman, none of us have any problem with this. It's just white pundits mostly out there that have a problem on our behalf. And so, unfortunately, that's something that happens. Did you have anything else? Okay.
3: No, well, actually, I was just going to say, I, growing up, I mean, to me, China and Japan, but especially China at the time, where there it, it was this cool place where people did martial arts. Right. And, like, Jackie Chan lived there. And I was like, man, that is such a cool culture. That's awesome. It's this mysterious place where monks are practicing martial arts in the mountains, and then Jackie Chan is having adventures jumping over skyscrapers or whatever he does and and then of course there's villains i mean of course there's we have villains right i know a lot of white villains of course the chinese have villains so i all of this had already shifted the whole i mean the yellow peril conversation did shift like it was it, that stuff wasn't part of my lexicon right it wasn't part of how i thought about china at all when i was a kid just like there's villains and there's heroes china's cool Yeah, no, Asian culture has always been cool as far as, as long as I can remember. Yeah, Um, in Japan, even cooler.
0: Yeah, like the coolest nerd kids, not the jocks, but the nerds like always loved Asian
1: stuff and watched Asian movies and anime and like, it's all just, yeah. Asian entertainment, Japanese entertainment specifically, just it transcends American race too. You know, white Americans and black Americans, it's just part of our childhood. I think we're starting with our generations. It's just with Dragon Ball Z and, and Pokemon and all these sorts of things, which I was a bit young for. Or old for those at the time, but but you talk to anyone who's thirty, regardless of the race in America, man, that stuff is just part of their childhood, right?
0: And they well, understand I mean, that anybody yo-
2: younger yeah. than that saw mm-hmm. the manga, yeah,
1: yeah, and mm-hmm. they all understand
0: the narrative conceits and the way that they tell stories and kind of the point of view that informs those stories. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's just part of our entertainment lexicon now in a way that I think is cool. So uh, let me talk a little bit about John Carpenter and about this the making of this film real quick, and then we'll get to our thoughts. So John Carpenter, super cool. I don't care that everyone is ripping him off now in Stranger Things, like the font, the electronica, like he's such a, for being a cult guy, he's such a mainstream cult guy now that he's almost lame, but I cannot tell a lie. John Carpenter is cool. And I think I'm going to, in my little talk here, I'm going to outline three secrets that could unlock success for so many artists, secrets that made John carpenter great so if you're an artist and you want to be as cool of an artist as john carpenter then pay attention john carpenter if you're not aware is the genre auteur of the 80s also the late 70s and early 90s but he kind of died off around then he's one of those guys who couldn't catch a break and get into the big leagues like spielberg this was his big attempt also the thing was his big attempt both of those movies totally bombed but most of his movies live on as beloved cult items, and they sell DVDs, and then Blu-ray comes out, and then they do a special edition of the Blu-ray, and then they do 4K. And his influence is immense, and his popularity is immense, and people, his movies just live on. People, every generation, rediscovers him. Stranger Things, obviously, is pretty directly doing Carpenter. Ari Aster, A24, Elevated Horror, all that kind of, like, the popular, sophisticated strain of horror films hereditary, things like that, all very much doing Carpenter. So he's as popular as he's ever been. And he's like a dude that's on Twitter and smoking his cigarettes, playing his video games and decrying the state of the industry. And And people will ask him, what do you think about them remaking The Fog? And he'll be like, well, I was sitting on my couch playing Call of Duty Part 9, and you know what happened? A check came, a check for the remake of The Fog. And so I love the remake of The Fog. I love it every time they remake one of my movies because checks come. and I just love cashing those checks. <laughs> um, and John Carpenter basically checked out of the film industry and started performing his music. He, he goes around. You can catch him. He plays all the, these iconic themes and new music that he's written. He also does film music, so the new Halloween films, he wrote just the music. He didn't really do anything. I think he was an executive producer. He cast some checks and he wrote some music on those. But there is a Martin Scorsese quote that goes around the internet every couple weeks on John Carpenter that I just want to read because it'll tell you in what esteem this guy is held. Quote John Carpenter is a filmmaker who is unashamed to stay within the genres he loves, horror and science fiction. And who practices his trade like a master craftsman? His pictures always have a handmade quality. Every cut, every move, every choice of framing and camera movement, not to mention every note of music he composes his own scores, feels like it has been composed or placed by the filmmaker himself. His sense of composition is quite exacting and precise, and his control of movement inside and outside the frame can be hair raising. There are so many moments in his films that are absolutely startling. And then he lists a bunch of things from. John Carpenter's movies. But this is what he's known as for this. He
2: brought Scorsese up and I thought, oh, this goes exactly one of two ways. Right. Mad respect or zero respect. Yeah, no, no. Mad no. respect.
0: And it's because of the quality control that this guy had, just the craftsmanship, the framing, like what's in the frame, what's out of frame. He she shot in scope this uh, the more of a rectangle than a square, a little wider than we're used to these days with 169, wider than your laptop. But, and he has these incredibly well-composed shots and, and in terms of just putting things in the frame, moving the camera, he's right up there with somebody like Spielberg, only maybe a little bit more formally beautiful and precise. And you can see a lot of that in this movie. It's just a very beautiful movie in the way that it's put together. But John Carpenter, born January 16, 1948 in Carthage, New York. To Howard Ralph Carpenter and Gene, Milton Gene Carpenter. Howard was a music professor. John loved westerns and he loved 1950s horror movies such as The Thing from Another World or Forbidden Planet, both classics. And so he grows up, he just wants to make horse movies. He wants to make westerns. He wants to make the kinds of films that he grew up watching. And that is an important point, I think, because this guy actually made a ton of westerns, but none of them were ever called. A Western, and this would be one of them. He went to the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts in 1968, but he did not stick around. He started making a student film, and he did such a good job on the student film that he realized he could drop out and just promote it as a film that people could watch. That is called Dark Star. It is still out there. Some people like it. It was actually co-written by Dan O'Bannon, the father of Alien. The guy who conceived of the, the, who wrote the screenplay for the first Alien movie and worked out the mechanics of the life, the famous life cycle of the alien, a pretty iconic monster. They made that movie for a few thousand dollars, duct tape, but it proved that John could do movies and he did everything himself. He shot, he edited, he composed the score and already had this kind of really formal control over everything. But then he made his first kind of classic movie, which is called Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976. And Assault on Precinct 13 drew from Howard Hawks from Rio Bravo, but it put it in a modern context. Again, John Carpenter really just wished he could make John Wayne movies. That's what he grew up loving even more than horror movies, but that wasn't going to sell. And so he was like, okay, how can I just do a, the guys are all holed up in the sheriff's office with Indians surrounding it movie and he made it a gang in a city, and but it's just like all the tropes are western. You know, it's like the bad guy that is under lock and key, kind of like Chance in, what's that movie we did on the podcast? And Stagecoach, the John Wayne character who's a good guy, but he's a bad guy, but he's locked up, but they have to let him out so that he can help them mm-hmm. defeat the bad guys are who are out there. And it's also got this really famous moment where Haley Mills, who is the little girl in the the Parent Trap she comes running up to buy some ice cream or something and the bad guys are in the ice cream truck if I'm remembering this correctly and they just shoot her in the chest and she goes flying back and dies a bloody death and she's the cute little girl from The Parent Trap who he paid a lot of money just to
2: and Pollyanna
0: and Pollyanna yeah Mm -hmm. so he got Pollyanna and then he shot her in the chest (laughs) and it's this horribly bad taste shock moment that really sets the stakes high for the like whoa if this dude's willing to kill parent tri-pollyanna, then nobody's safe. And so here's my creative secret number one from John Carpenter. There's always a way to take the things that you like and meet an audience halfway. I mean, this is what this guy has done so well through his career is he's made the movies that he wants to make, but he always made them within the genres that were popular at the time. So he did horror, he did sci-fi, he did urban violence, kind of dirty, hairy, hairy stuff. But he found a way to bring his own obsessions and his own things into them. And I have mad respect for the artists who can do that. I mean, I think the best art is always art where the artist says like, I want to do this thing. Now, how do I put it in a package that people will like? I think it's incredibly selfish when you're just like, I want to do this thing. And I think it's incredibly compromised when you're just like, what will people like? But if you can actually have the smarts and the wherewithal and the integrity to say, I'm making a contract with people that they should be happy that they saw my movie, so I'm going to do it for them, but also there's no way for me to even do it with any integrity if I don't bring the th- myself to it. And so how do I put those two things together? It's, that's a tricky thing, and it informs every kind of artistic or performative pursuit that there is. And John Carpenter is a really good example of a guy that I think did that kind of thing incredibly well and sometimes you'll catch him and he'll seem like such a rebel such a like the studio i had to do my and sometimes he's just the most crass i'm cashing checks kind of a guy but i think that there are those two things within him that are cool his big claim to fame of course is comes in 1978 with halloween the prototypical slasher movie the movie that invented slasher movies a huge commercial success for a long time the most popular the most money-making independent film of all time. And a producer just comes to him and says, hey, we should do the babysitter murders. Let's do a movie about babysitters being stalked. So the most sort of crass idea. And at some point they had the idea to set it on Halloween night, which is just genius because nobody had done that in 70 years of film. Nobody had just said, hey, let's make a scary movie set on Halloween. So even the movie doesn't actually have, as Joe was saying, it's very California. It's pretty bad in its setting of halloween atmosphere just calling it halloween having a couple jack-o-lanterns it just gives it such a a kick that it would not have
2: there's nothing and it also is a really smart commercial decision yeah right oh what should we watch this halloween (laughs) how about halloween Mm -hmm. you know the movie that is themed to fit the holiday that has no other movies that fit the holiday
1: right yeah exactly what are you gonna say joe i was gonna say i think any creative person is hoping to stumble upon an idea that no one else has had that once they say it, it was obvious the yes, whole time. Yes, exactly. Those are the best ideas. Yeah. It's like,
0: oh, of course. Like Why how don't... has
1: no one thought of this yet? You know? Right. Yeah, and that's what that was. And Carp... here's
0: a quote from Carpenter on Halloween. Woo... Halloween, True, cra- quote, true crass exploitation. I decided to make a film I would love to have seen as a kid full of cheap tricks like a haunted house at a fair where you walk down the corridor and things jump out at you. But it is the original This is me talking now, not Carpenter. It is the original. It it created the vocabulary of things jump out at you in a way that not even Hitchcock had done before. It basically took all of Hitchcock's tricks, boiled them down into an incredibly successful formula. And John Carpenter is such a a master of the frame, what's in and out of the frame, that he just invented like, like all this stuff that we take for granted now. Like, As long as the monster's out of the frame, the person can't see the monster. And so the monster... If you actually understand the geography, if you think for two seconds about the geography, you'd realize that, well, why didn't she see Michael Myers coming up at her? But the reason she didn't see him is because he was outside the frame. And so he's going to jump into the frame and it's going to startle the audience. And so like, just the whole vocabulary of of hide-and-seek, how to do a hide-and-seek movie. There's two kinds of horror movies Guillermo del Toro told us. There's hide-and-seek and there's tag. And the tag is that you see the monster it's running at you. Hide and seek is your, you don't know where the monster is. And the whole vocabulary of you don't know where the monster is, John Carpenter invented and perfected. And people have so thoroughly ripped it off. And it's such a cliche now. But I would disagree with Joe when he says the movie doesn't work. I think Halloween, if you're in the right mood for it, maybe I just saw it at the right age. But I found that, it, for me at least, it had a really elemental power. Like it got under my skin, just the idea of a guy in a mask. You don't know who he is. He's stalking you. It's certainly better than like a scream or a a Friday the 13th or something like that. You
1: know, I, I can see your point about it being a, something of a carnival ride. Like I think about the rides that we took our kids to Universal last year and you have that 30 second video to give you context for the storyline, quote unquote, of the ride. You mm-hmm. know, then it's just a ride from there. And really yeah. it makes no sense. You didn't really need that, but something about it adds an atmosphere. Yeah. I, oh yeah. I think that that I think it definitely works in that context. I watched it at the wrong time, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I've got two teenage daughters, and and that that really informs. We're keeping them out of the room. You know what I'm saying, yeah, that's, you know, it, it really, it really, it was really, it's really the worst possible time to watch that movie. I would, I would agree with that. Yeah,
0: it's it's not a very gory movie. Actually, it plays as gory because it plays on your imagination. But there's almost no blood. There's a little bit of nudity, which is unfortunate, and the ideas are certainly meant to be scary. But it, it's actually. Fairly bloodless compared to all the stuff that, like, all that, th- what happened afterwards is very cra- truly crass and exploitative. People said, We can repeat this. We can amp up the gore and the nudity. And that's how you get Friday the 13th and the whole 80s and into the 90s boom of terrible slasher movies. But Carpenter is actually good. The movie was critically acclaimed at the time. People kind of look back at it as being the father of a disreputable genre, but it was considered to be a pretty great independent film. In its day. And this is my second lesson for artists. This is a Matisse quote that I basically, if I had an office, this Matisse quote would be in my office because I love it so much. Matisse said, Don't try to be original, be simple, be good technically. And if there's something in you, it will come out. And that's John Carpenter. He's not trying to make a masterpiece, he's just being really good. And I think that, I don't know, I'm sure, Joe, you'd say that something in that resonates for being a musician or.
1: Anything else, right? Yeah, as I mean, as a songwriter, there's I always tell people music is ninety percent math and ten percent creative choices. Exactly, and the ninety percent math has to be right, or no one's going to care about the ten percent creative choices. Yeah, yeah, I think that's
0: perfect. I mean, I might even say ninety-five percent math when it comes to creativity. But yes, it's like you have to have the inspiration. You can't be without that five or ten percent inspiration. You're sunk
1: without it. But then you have to do a lot of hard work. And yeah, no one cares if you don't get the math right. Yeah, It, it does not matter. And if you want to break the rules, if you want to get the math wrong, it's because you understood what the math was supposed to be. Look, unless you're the Beatles, they're the, always the exception that they didn't know the rules and so they they just did what they wanted. But
0: for everyone else, right? It's really a bad idea to assume you're just the a Beatles. Genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you are a genius, it's generally a bad idea to assuming assume you're a genius. You're. Really
1: is going to get us into the heart of let's hold. I put a pen in that. That's at the heart of Big Trouble in Little China.
0: Yes, exactly. We've got a great example of that. So let me hurry and get through this so we can actually get to the, talking about the movie. So. Then he does Escape from New York, which actually comes out in 81, the same year as The Road Warrior, basically helps create the whole punk post-apocalyptic trend in filmmaking. Then in 1982, John Carpenter gets his... All these movies have basically been independent films, very successful. He gets his chance to go mainstream with a big Universal Pictures film called The Thing, which has the misfortune, an incredibly gory and nihilistic horror sci-fi movie, has the misfortune of opening against the most optimistic and happy sci-fi movie et the extraterrestrial (laughs) which just wipes the floor with it and people are in the mood for a little hope and they are not in the mood for paranoid gory nihilism for for whatever reason who can understand (laughs) with human beings all right so thing was a giant bomb and then we do big trouble in little china in 1986 which is carpenters other big attempt to break into the mainstream and they really the studio believed in this movie I think they expected another Raiders of the Lost Ark. Carpenter believed in this movie. The test scores were off the charts. Like Kurt Russell talks about being at press junkets and the press people being like, so man, how does it feel to star in the new Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or how does it feel to be in the big movie of the summer and it really going to his head? And well, it feels great. And then this movie bombed. People didn't get it and it wasn't well advertised. And But... Here's my third lesson. My third lesson for artists He who laughs last, laughs best because every one of John Carpenter's movies, even the bad ones, is, with the exception probably of Jake's big touchstone memoirs of the <laughs> Invisible Man. It's like Ghost
3: of Mars, right? It,
0: <laughs> even Ghost of Mars will continue getting 4K upgrade discs and stuff and selling huh. and making money into the end of time. John Carpenter. One thing that John Carpenter did that was really smart is you'll notice most of his movies say John Carpenter's blank. Uh-huh. It's kind of the opposite of Francis Ford Coppola always make sure he's the author it says Mario Puzo's The Godfather or Bram Stoker's Dracula or something mm-hmm. like that. John Carpenter always John Carpenter's This, John Carpenter's The Fog, John Carpenter's Halloween, John Carpenter and so he just knew how to make himself brand himself really well. And you got that John Carpenter font now used for Stranger Things and something like that. I don't have a ton of things to say about the actual making of the movie, but it this movie began as something completely different. It began as an actual Western set in the Old West where a cowboy, Jack Burton the cowboy rides into town and his horse is stolen and he has to go into the underbelly of Chinatown in Old West San Francisco, which sounds like a pretty cool movie, I think. But the studio was just like, we're going to buy the screenplay from these guys who wrote it, but there's just one too many things we have to accept. It's like the, the audience will go with us into an underground lair of traps and monsters and stuff, but first we have to get them to accept a cowboy movie. It's like, it's just, it's one too many layers to ask people to accept. I don't know whether they were right or wrong about that. Cowboys versus Aliens is maybe an example of another movie that didn't hit,
1: but it also just wasn't very good. So That's interesting because once you get into Chinatown, I, I was in San Francisco three weeks ago, it obviously looks nothing like. Right. It's still styled like it's a turn of the 20th century city. They stylize it like it's like there's no electricity in most spots and
0: yeah. So, I mean, it It could have been good. I mean, their first, there, so the idea for this movie was East meets West. Like, that's that was the pitch. And there was a bunch of like Zhu Hark, who made Once Upon a Time in China and a bunch of Wuxia movies. He was already doing his thing at the time. All these, it's pronounced Wuxia, right? Ben? Wuxia. Wuxia. Yeah. yeah. All, all these kinds of mystical Chinese vampire fighting kind of special effects movies were big in Hong Kong cinema. So there was this whole genre of, a pictures there but they would come here as B pictures of just the craziest stuff. I mean much crazier even than this movie. If you I don't know if people who are listening will have touchstones for this kinds of stuff, but there's this there's like the old Shaw Brothers martial arts movies that we're all familiar with for they give us the vocabulary of bad like whoo, 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 sound effects and uh, Bruce Lee type stuff. There's that but then there's this fantastical strain where there's like weird hopping vampires. So it's Crouching Tiger. Yeah, it's Crouching Tiger. But imagine all the silly.
2: Crouching Tiger is the Spielberg. Sure, it's the loved, art house loved, version. Loved this sort of thing and wanted to put money behind it. Right, it's like The Raiders of the Lost sure.
0: Ark to the actual pulpy B movies of like Zuhark movies of the '80s are just they're crazy. They're like I said, you're gonna see monsters that you just have no frame of reference for literal hopping vampires floating heads ben and i played a board game called ghost story one time which uh-huh. I think is japanese but it's got a lot of that style mm-hmm. of like just their whole demonology and stuff is so i guess it's not weirder
3: than ours it's just different, different and we don't know it once upon a time in china is a pretty good place to start it doesn't have that kind of stuff it has pretty high production values it's still weird yeah it's great that's jet lee right that's um, jet lee that's a famous I don't know how you actually pronounce his name, but Zuhak, famous movie of his that made a lot of money. I think, yeah, it's
0: great. There's the whole trilogy is good and has wonderful action and floating, and it's it's like the wire as we condescendingly called it, wire foo mm-hmm. stuff yeah. with the stuff that the Wachowskis were drawing on for the Matrix, yeah, and certainly that Crouching Tiger drew on. So there's there's a whole style that these guys were writing their movie to sort of be the Western equivalent of. But Jack Burton was a literal, instead of a figurative cowboy, the studio was like, hey guys, that's too many points of remove. Can you modernize it? And then the original screenwriters were like, that sounds like a good deal. I have a better one. How about I give you the finger and you give me my screenplay? And so they got fired. And John Carpenter joined, the movie was rewritten into a modern movie. He got Kurt Russell was an up and coming star at the time. Kurt Russell is like a iconic star from my childhood. He's also one of those guys who's never really broken out. Like he's in Ben's favorite movie, Stargate, obviously. Right, obviously. Uh, he's just one of the best stars that there is, though. Yes, but he got his start actually a, as a Disney star in, in all those corny old 50s, 60s movies, like The Boy Wore Tennis Shoes computer. or the, the Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. Yeah. Like that's where Kurt Russell was first rose to fame. And one of the most famous things about Kurt Russell, if you don't know, is that one of the last things that Walt Disney ever did was write the name Kurt Russell on a piece of paper. It was found on his deathbed or something like that. Like, Kurt Walt Disney just scribbled the words Kurt Russell before he died. Like, it's his rosebud. Yeah, it's his rosebud. So we don't want to weird. It's probably nothing that interesting. Kurt Disney just had another project in mind for kurt russell or something like that but disney's literally dying of lung cancer gasping out his last breaths and he's like kurt russell What you'll actually hear the urban legend that goes around is that it's the last thing disney said but is the story the real story isn't that cool so carpenter gets russell and russell's a pretty humble guy actually he really likes the idea of not being a movie star and of being a character actor, and of subverting movie star expectations. So there's a lot of movie stars. Like Carpenter says this over and over and over again. On the commentary track for this movie, he's just like, you're not going to believe me because you're going to think that most movie stars are rational people, but it would be so hard. It's so amazing what Kurt Russell's doing in this movie, and it would be so hard to find a star that wouldn't say, hey, can you make Jack Burton a little bit more of a hero? Can you actually give me some moments like...
1: Yeah, my wife and I were talking about this after watching Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2, which Kurt Russell does a great job in. One of the that, best Marvel
3: villains ever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: that we really think that the closest you can get to Kurt Russell is Chris Pratt, we mm-hmm. thought, in terms of a guy willing to play a bumbling idiot. But even he, I don't think, can quite pull it off. Oh, no. With just such joy of like... No, oh, he doesn't have the chops. No, he's not. No, yeah. I think he has the spirit of it, but not the acting chops mm-hmm. to quite pull it off. Well, also and, and I like Chris reminds Pratt. reminds me of... Kurt Russell's next
2: level. <laughs> sorry to... Make this pull, but it's like watching Hugh Grant in the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Yeah, yeah, where he's oh, yeah, he's just hamming up, being yeah the bad guy and being sort of the effete. Like I am old and ugly now, and this makes me really happy. Mm-hmm. And, like I know
1: Dwayne Johnson wants to remake this movie, and suffer. Yes, and that. what's likable about Dwayne Johnson? He's he's the coolest guy in the room, and that's not no, what that you that'd be want so bad. Unless he's
0: willing to subvert his, image. but and, that's
2: not his image. That's right. not what he cultivates. Yeah, it would be terrible.
0: Yeah, it would be a mismatch for sure. I don't think they're going to let him do it because they're just going to say, hey, Dwayne, uh, even though you're whatever he is, an island person, you can't make a Chinese movie. Maybe you can because you're an island person. I, I'm sorry. I'm not a virulent racist, even though I'm saying island person. I just can't
1: remember what Dwayne Johnson Samoans, is. I Samoan. Think. <laughs> I, yes. think. I think. He's a half Samoan, half half black American. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's okay. right. Okay. So, so Carpenter goes to Russell and says, we're going to make a movie, movie, movie about a sidekick who thinks he's a hero. Russell loves that concept and i think ba- especially back in those days i think we're a little bit more used to this type of joke with a, like a chris pratt in the guardians of the galaxy like or thor and the, the later thor movies the, the taika Waititi stuff like we we get like the whole guy that looks like a traditional hero but is actually a buffoon like that's a pretty common trope these days but they're really excited like oh man we're doing something new we're and this is
2: the Stallone Schwarzenegger. Right. This is
0: the era of beefy, monosyllabic action guys. And so being able to bring some humor and some subversion some, some, some to that is a really fun idea. They actually went after Jackie Chan for the part that Danny, is it Danny Dunn? Not Danny Dunn. Danny Dunn's our mutual uh, friend. Dennis Dunn. Dennis Dunn. The Dennis Dunn plays. Jackie Chan had had a a series of movies that didn't really work that he had done with Western money. And so he very wisely decided to go back to Hong Kong and make Police Story, which is one of his undisputed masterpieces instead of making this movie. But it is fun to imagine this movie with Jackie Chan instead
2: of Dennis Dunn. Probably has more legs just because you take Carpenter, Russell and Jackie Chan's names.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jackie Chan, I guess, was, but yeah, in any case, that didn't happen. So they got Dennis Dunn, who wasn't a martial artist, but was like a, he he, had, he was a dancer and stuff. Like He he had the chops to do it, and then, but not do it like Jackie Chan. And then we got Kim Cattrall, pre-Sex in the City fame, to play Gracie Law. Don't worry, it's just me, Gracie Law, my favorite mo- line mannequin. in the movie. Mannequin,
2: she's famous for Mannequin. Man, mannequin, guys. yeah, famous for so many things. And you grew up watching Mannequin?
0: I did not grow up watching Mannequin. I grew me up either. watching
2: Mannequin, so I know her from Mannequin.
0: My yeah. wife and I, because we we're not big don't Sex watch in the Mannequin. City yet. We've we never watched any Sex in the City, but we're Me like neither. we know that we no. know Kim Cattrall. Where do we know?
2: What did we all grow up watching from her? And we can we can think of it. I placed it. Yeah, watching the movie, I was like, I know this woman. What do I know her from? Mannequin, and maybe Police Academy, but I don't know for sure. But that's my brain. Yeah, I think police, police Academy is in right. One of the Police Academy
0: movies. I think she's. Probably in
3: the
1: Police Academy. Is she the one that could do all the voices?
2: I didn't know her name. <laughs> yeah, 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 she does all the voices. It, she, she's that one. Oh, right.
3: she's in Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. Yes, that's <laughs> oh, right. That's she's, it, the yeah. no, she's
2: the Vulcan. She's the traitor, not. right? I remember her. Would not know. Yeah, I didn't know her name. I just knew that she was the
1: mannequin. Yes, and <laughs> she—I've just confirmed she is the girl in Police Academy. Ha! I think, uh, yeah. There are all these actors and actresses though that their reputation outlives what you can say they were in. Somehow, right. <laughs> it's like you know we can't say a single thing that they were and per se but everybody knows that face, you know, or that face. That. yeah exactly
0: right we've got obviously a great cast of asian and asian americans the guy that plays storm i forget what else he's in but he's a great physical presence yeah that guy's so that guy's awesome um victor wong who plays the uh, grandpa
2: and three ninjas right
0: yeah he's you see him, are, this is part of my baggage you I see him it's... pop up in those paternal kind of <laughs> wizardy roles Victor lot. Wong is incredible in this movie. Yeah, he's great. I, I love Aikshan, or Aikeshen, whatever. They, interestingly, well, interestingly to me at least, maybe to no one else, Boss Film Studios did the special effects. They were ILM's big competitor in the day. those days. ILM had a big competitor in those days. Huh. These <laughs> days, the, Weta, the Lord of the Rings people, are their big competitor. But Boss Film Studios was like, hey, we're going to get into the business and we're going to compete with ILM. And so they did stuff on Ghostbusters. On Die Hard, on Poltergeist Two. And if you think of the Ghostbusters style, it, it does feel it a fits, lot like yeah. this movie. The little my favorite special effect creature, the head guy. Yeah, oh yeah, guardian. that's the best. Yeah, he feels a lot like oh, Slimer, Slimer or Onion Head, as he's credited in the first movie. Anyway, this movie was a huge bomb. <laughs> Nobody liked it. It didn't make any money. The studio supposedly only had so much money that they spent on marketing. They did not know how to market this movie. It is, if you think about it maybe a difficult movie to market like how do you boil it down into an elevator pitch seems like you'd be able to do it with a little thought but maybe you have to lie a little bit about it like just say it's the new raiders of the lost ark i don't know but seems like you ought to be able to sell this movie it did great in test screenings it got really high scores people that saw it loved it and it's well regarded to this day but the critics didn't exactly know what to make of it. A lot of people didn't understand what Kurt Russell, their stories of people just getting done with the movie and being like, man, the hero was kind of lame. Like, what was it with that? Like, like, as if they dropped the ball somehow. But...
2: Why couldn't they figure out how to write a hero? Right, yeah. Like, what's wrong with him? I can't believe he's <laughs> like sh- they kept undermining him. And it's like
1: really weird. Why would, you know? You could almost put this in a category of the movie like Starship Troopers, where... Mm-hmm. You know, really, it's meant to be a a takedown of fascism, but you know, it's advertised as an action adventure sci-fi type movie. Mm -hmm. And 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 two thirds of the way through it, I remember watching it when I was too young to watch it and thinking, "Man, these people seem actually kind of awful." Like I don't know that I'm rooting for the right side here, right? And that's the whole point. But I couldn't get myself out of the mindset of this is an action adventure sci-fi movie. And so, yeah, the same thing. It's like, oh, they just can't write heroes.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the reviews for Starship Troopers when it came out, people are like, man, what a fascist film. And now people are like, man, what a fascist film. Like they they really did a funny, ironic thing. Exactly. But yeah, uh, the movie's the same thing. And like I said, the first time I saw it, I think I knew he was doing a John Wayne impression. Like I actually his cadence is very John Wayne. A lot of what he's doing is very exaggerated and silly when you actually take one second to think about it. But one thing about Russell is he's a good actor and he does actually look like An action star, Mm -hmm. and like like the thing about Chris Pratt is he doesn't actually bring real action star gravitas. I would say, like he he feels like a goofy guy dressed up as an action star, and that can be very effective. But Kurt Russell feels like the real deal. I mean, he's he's ridiculous. His t-shirt's ridiculous. His the second my my second favorite character after Jack Burton. His mullet, his eighties his eighties mullet is a great character in this movie. Uh, it was like, there's so much that's so silly about him, but he's still just credible enough that it is actually sort of dryly understated, the joke that this movie's making, as silly as it is. Maybe just because we're used to exaggerated action, Rambo, like heroes that are actually kind of that stupid. But he plays it so straight. And he plays it so straight, while never, also being really silly. Like, yeah. He shoots a piece of roof and it falls on his head. Like, <laughs> But, he, <laughs> but he, never, he, never, he never winks about yeah. it. Right. Yeah, he's not going through the movie telling you, like I'm above this. I'm above this. I'm playing a dumb character. Yeah.
1: Well, hurting the whole point of the movie though, I think is the movie opens with the scene of Egg Shen talking to this lawyer mm-hmm. and about Jack Burton and the studio made them put that scene in. Yes, exactly. Because uh-huh. they didn't think that the movie made Jack Burton look heroic enough as the lead character. And so the studio makes them put in this thing, singing the praises of Jack Burton, which totally just undercuts the point of the whole movie, which is he's not the main character.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like it insofar as it's even sort of ends up being more subversive because Zeg Shen like is like,
1: let me tell you the story of the
0: great hero Jack Burton, <laughs> and then he's like shooting roof tile onto his head. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but yes, it is silly that the studio. And as Carpenter said, Carpenter's just like they expected Raiders of the Lost Ark. They were disappointed they didn't get it, but they paid for this script. He, Carpenter's just like I, he says it again and again in the commentary. He's like. I didn't write this script. This is the script the studio bought. They Jack Burton was this way on the page. This is the movie we agreed to make. And then everybody was surprised.
2: That um, We made the movie that was in the script.
0: I mean, you could see how if you were a studio executive skimming the script, you just think, great, we've got the new Raiders. This is awesome. And maybe you don't actually pick up on the fact that it's even more sarcastic than Raiders, which is also a movie that...
2: But some of that's a creative choice. Like you can see John Carpenter doing Raiders. Like you think of how much the joke is on Indiana Jones.
0: Right. Right. How much he does almost do things like shoot roof tires. He does
2: almost it. do that multiple times throughout Raiders. It, he punches out
0: the Nazi and then the outfit is too
2: it's too small. Yeah. And so the joke's always on Indiana Jones. And it's just a they're creative choices and there's a tightrope that you're dancing. And we and also we got John Williams to do the score instead of John Carpenter. Yes. And all that makes a big difference in how it all plays.
0: Yeah, that was the only thing that I wanted to say about this. I love John Carpenter music. I like it a little bit better in horror movies. I think I think this movie could feel a lot more grand and sort of
1: magical if it mm-hmm. had a, a, a... Orchestral score.
0: A, a Jerry Goldsmith or John yep. Williams or any of the guys, James Horner, or any of the guys that were doing an orchestral score at the time. And I think that actually was one of the things that confused me as a teenager or kid or whatever I was. Like, this feels like such one of those 80s kind of classic adventure movies, but it doesn't sound like one. And I don't no. know how to wrap my head around that. I think it's cool now, but it threw me for a loop. Anyway, let's get to our point of view on this film, gentlemen.
2: Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. A
3: new fantastic point of view.
2: Good as a point of view, Eddie. I'm sorry,
0: we couldn't think of any other point of view things to put into that clip compilation, so you got two Star Wars and a <laughs>
1: and Aladdin. And Aladdin. You're going to owe Disney so much money. <laughs> yeah, we probably already do.
0: If you can think of another point of view quote that we can put into the point of view audio montage, then we're happy to do it, but it has to work for
1: it. So yeah, obviously, Joe, you love this film, right? I do love this film. I think it's, I think it's hysterical. Well, let me say this. I think Jack Burton is just, he's the stand in for every American, right? Mm. He's got an opinion about everything already because culturally that's what we're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to have an opinion about every little thing. His CB radio speeches he gives while he's driving his truck And he's telling everybody his thoughts on everything. That is the quintessential American way to live life, right? Where you sum up you have an opinion on everything, but it's a sentence long, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know? And then you start a podcast and broadcast. Yes, let the the
0: irony not go unmentioned. Here's four white (laughs) guys doing a podcast on our thoughts on race in
1: America. Yeah. C B radio. I mean, look—we're all—it's the water we all swim in, right? And we don't realize it's water. It's part of being American is we have an opinion on everything. And so I love the subtle things, right? The, the, everything is through his lens. I really do believe that's the point. And so it's not just magic; it's Chinese black magic. It's not just a standoff; it's a Chinese standoff, you know. <laughs> and, uh,
4: standoff. <laughs> and, uh,
1: and, you know, and later on, there's the six demon bag they pour the potion out of, and he asks you, "What's in the six demon bag?" It's cocaine. Like it's cocaine. But through his lens, it's Chinese mysticism, right? Mm. But there's that scene later where he's like, I feel pretty confident and powerful. Is it getting hot in here? You know, it's the <laughs> 80s. He just drank liquid <laughs> cocaine. But everything is through the lens of this guy who, who already has a, an opinion formed on everything, who already thinks he knows everything. And so he takes the most shallow viewpoint, stereotypical viewpoint of everything that he's seeing. And it's hilarious. Even the mysticism of Lo Pan. You see him as an old man. It's played by, played by James Hong, who's just great in that mm-hmm. role, especially when he's playing the little old man.
0: Yeah, the withered, like kind of creepy creeper.
1: Exactly. And the issue is not, it's not a ceremony so much as he just can't get anyone to like him back. Mm-hmm. I, I don't <laughs> know if I picked up on that as an adult. That, oh, love, we know all of these things, right? It's, just, it's hard to find it. And the issue here is not that some ritual has to be performed. It's that someone has to like him back. And nobody has in thousands of years because he's gross and creepy. You know. But through Jack Burton's eyes, it's a mystical thing. And there obviously is a lot of mysticism around it. But at the heart of it are these very human things that he can't grasp because he already has his mind made up about everything already. Mm -hmm. And they do that in the funniest possible way. His performance is just, when they ask you, you want the truth, Jack? he says, I can take it. And he just learns nothing from any of it. So the action's great. The set pieces are wonderful. I miss sets in movies Mm -hmm. so much. I miss not just green screens or not just live, like traveling on site, but I love sets and I love practical special effects, even though this has my least favorite practical special effect of all time which is the guy blowing up. But not because it's poorly
0: done, but just because it's gross. Uh, It's
1: disgusting. And as a kid, it just bothered me and it still bothers me to this day. But (laughs) I'm a fan of that one. (laughs) I gotta love that one. Oh (laughs) oh, man, it grosses me out. But I think it's hard to find a movie that somehow can have all this messaging that we've talked about and also just be a really fun movie at the same time and really funny. Mm -hmm. You know, laugh out loud funny. And the older you get, the funnier it becomes, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll say I was much more tuned into this movie's wavelength this time watching it. And I really enjoyed it for that reason. I really I mean, it is a great comedic star turn from Kurt Russell. He's really, really fun. And I think they thread the needle nicely of making him a total buffoon, but also they give him enough moments that You don't they, feel bad about him. You don't feel him. bad for him. Yeah. yeah. No. Like he's actually if you just can if you just flop the roles and say this guy's the sidekick, he's a cool comedic sidekick. Like mm-hmm. and he does get the villain kill, which is an interesting choice given mm-hmm. given what they were doing. And it is because of a reflex skill that he has
2: setups and payoffs setups and payoffs baby payoffs yes, setups and payoffs <laughs>
0: <laughs> i don't know if i think this is a great movie but if you're like an 80s amblin guy and you've exhausted your indiana jones and your goonies and your gremlins and you want something else to give you a hit of it
2: i would say in a really potent sort yeah. of like just that magic mm-hmm. just that sense of like oh you know how those movies felt like they tapped into your nightmares and your dreams and your id as a kid and even if it's like Fraggle Rock, or which terrified me as a right. uh, as a Dark child. Crystal, <laughs> or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, you you just want that hit in the, maybe one of its purest forms. I had no idea what to expect. Actually, I, I, well, I, if I had any expectation, it was that it would have a, a story that I'm tracked and that like it was just like a roller coaster ride mm-hmm. through the id of this underground labyrinth with monsters and things. And
3: yeah,
0: it was fun. Yeah, I mean, there's critiques I can make, but Ben, what's your what's your big thoughts?
3: I just wasn't there for it this time. I'll be the downer. I just didn't. I just didn't really enjoy it. I enjoyed it more the first time I watched it. I remember getting more of a kick out of the meta of the Kurt Russell of, of it all. I still think he's awesome. He's really fun. He's really fun. He's hilarious. But I may have to watch it another time. I'm having more fun talking about it and talking about all the stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's there. Yeah, but I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. Just, I think the synth score is a definite thing, but also just the way that it's aged in terms of sets and editing and Carpenter movies, the editing always feels slow to me. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm like, I see what you're doing. I respect that. I wish that you would edit a little faster because I'm waiting and I feel like I'm waiting, waiting, but that's just some of that's just older style. I think it works really well when
0: it's like, duh is Michael Myers around the corner? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like That sort of thing it can be great. Yeah. I would say, here's where I probably deviate the most from Joe's point of view. Set pieces, I wish we had real martial arts. I mean, I, martial arts is, has just come such a long way in its depiction, and it was already so much cooler in Hong Kong filmmaking at the time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bad, corny martial arts in this movie. I mean, the final duel between... Wind, is it Wind? And Rain. Rain and Wang is pretty lame with them jumping. I mean, it's silly. I get it. I get what it's doing. It's But what this feels like is a bunch of middle-aged white guys doing their kind of lame version of something that was done cooler than in places and certainly has been thoroughly surpassed since. So I do check out a little bit during some of the extended action scenes. But...
3: Yeah, I can, I can kind of see, I can see what, I feel like I can see what Carpenter was seeing and doing, like adapting this stuff, so I have some sympathy for that. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, you captured some of what made, you were trying to capture what made martial arts so cool, put it into a way that Americans could sort of digest it, and maybe America wasn't prepared for longer takes of actual, like, extended Jackie Chanish style stuff, so I have some sympathy for that. The Wang Rain thing, yeah. I laughed it, it, at it. Yeah, it's. I laughed at it a little too. Cause it just kept going. <coughs> it just it kept just coming kept back. <laughs> yeah. They just kept jumping, and eventually, like I just, I was like, "This is 100%
2: comedic. Yeah. It's not here to be impressive. It's here to yeah. be a joke." And I was here for the all the jokes.
3: Well, so, it is kind of fun. He does get a good kill shot on Rain. This is the way that he ends the duel. Throws yeah. the sword at him. He goes flying into the mouth of the idol. I think the hole that they made in the giant demon statue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, he, John Carpenter's got some beats like that where you're like, oh, yeah, that's a good villain kill.
0: Yeah, all the villains have great deaths, I would say. I mean, <laughs> Lopan's got a great death. Yeah. Uh, oh, knocking
1: over all the Buddha statues. and. Yes. <laughs> I think it really depends on who was is, who is in charge of the scenes. I think the scene where you've got the three gangs fighting in the alley around the semi-truck, you can tell that the all those stuntmen were kind of allowed to do what they wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, that's and it looks the best much best better. martial yep.
0: arts in the movie. Yeah, I would agree with yeah. that. There
1: is the scene where the three storms take a front flip and throw the knife. And <laughs> I hate that scene. So it just looks so bad. Yeah. Or there's a scene, my, my brother, who also loves this movie, points out where Jack Burton gets double kicked and Adam, my brother's asking, so was someone holding him by the hips? Like, how do you throw both your legs up at once with any sort of power to kick someone 20 feet? And he just imagines one of the other storms behind this storm, just holding him by the hips, just letting him kick, you know? But <laughs> yeah. the whole thing makes no sense. And you can tell John Carpenter directed those scenes and some of the stuff that had more people involved, the stunt actors were more allowed to do their own thing.
0: Yeah, it feels like in the scenes where John Carpenter is more hands-on, it, f- it reminds me a little bit of Tim Burton's Batman, where you're like, this guy yep. really favors a static camera. Right. And he's just not a great action guy. Like, he, pr- he prefers wide shot and static camera. There's a way to make that work for action. But more, a more fluid kind of camera for the action and maybe some punch ins and close ups and some edits would go a long way.
3: Yeah, what I feel like is if he had, had been really successful and had a sequel, we would have gotten much better action scenes. Yeah. Kind of what you see with Burton moving from Batman to Batman Return. Suddenly, mm-hmm. Burton's like a little more clued into action editing and camera movement. He's like, okay, I got the comic book thing down. Now let's see if I can make it more dynamic. I feel yeah. like Carpenter would have been the same.
1: Remember back when Tim Burton would learn as he made movies? Mhm. That was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. <laughs> Remember back
3: when Tim Burton made movies? <laughs> oh man. Oh my goodness. Uh, hey Tim, you want
0: to put your name on another Alice in Wonderland thing? Uh, yeah. Oh no, my I haven't goodness. seen any of We'll get this. Johnny
2: Depp to play in it. Yeah, we'll
0: get Johnny Depp. Oh. Let me rush through a couple of other criticisms and then we can talk about what makes a movie great. The mythology, I understand it's from Jack Burton's point of view and it's it does and also that it doesn't really matter. But I I was frustrated that it wasn't a little bit more clear and set up and sort of... It just made me... What it really made me think is, man, Spielberg is so good in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like the amount of exposition and the way that they set these things up so simply and fluid. Whereas this movie, you're kind of like... Who's Gracie Law again? What is she doing? Why is she here? She's just the...
2: She's f- here to let you know that it's time for an exposition dump. Yeah, she's the Legolas of this
0: movie. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> she's just there for exposition. Yeah.
2: I mean, can one of you guys tell me, because
0: I still don't know, who is... Like, what is... She's just a random girl at the airport that was there to meet her friend?
3: She's a lawyer who d- does something like... She was protecting her friend who's a Chinese immigrant, I think, from... I think she or something. Un-
2: she understands... She's the one who, she's the American who understands all the ins and outs of Chinese culture. And so she's try, she's there to help and she's there to tell the world that something weird is going on here. Uh-huh. And so she's going to bring in her reporter friend. Yeah, why didn't they, they just I make
0: her that? the reporter? That would have been more clear to me. Like, she's there to get a story. She's like the lowest Lane. I, I, there's just an, any number of things like that where I'm like...
1: Well, you add that other reporter because that other guy who's so important that I can't remember his name even though I've watched this movie 25 times also needs a love interest. (laughs) Yes. And somebody to end up with. Yeah. And that's the third that, guy, like the yeah, yeah that's how important big he is to the story. He could have dropped them both, but um, right.
0: And you've got these two rival gangs, and I'm not clear whether Lo Pan is actually in charge of one of them or not. He is. okay, so he's in charge of the bad guy gang. Yeah, and black, then black clothing is Wang and all of our heroes. Are they actually on the good guy gang, or they're just working
3: with the good guy gang, or is it the good guy gang? Well, the the good guy gang is under Egg Chen, and Wang is a friend of Egg Chen, and so okay, yeah. But then Wang's like,
0: "What's wrong, Jack? You've never." shot anyone before like it, obviously these guys are all doing like <laughs> action right. hijinks all the time right. for some reason <laughs> yeah so yeah i mean another pass on the script to make it a little bit more clear i understand some of the muddle is some of the charm but it's, it's so i'm of two minds. you know it's kind of like they escape from the dungeon and then they go back so that they can go through the dungeon again and get and gracie Locke and get captured again it's like Just in terms of the structure, it's a little bit of a mess, but...
1: I will say as a counterpoint Mm -hmm. though, that I never thought I would say this because I'm part of the generation that probably caused all the streaming where every little question you ever asked is answered, Mm. and now we all regret it. That I actually appreciate the fact that if it doesn't matter, they just move on. So for example, they're telephone repairman Mm -hmm. and they they walk in with a literal telephone Yes, not not wires and cables not a toolbox (laughs) they literally walk in with a telephone yes and
2: that's pretty wonderful yeah Yeah, uh, we actually had a moment because we were sort of talking and laughing and they walk in and they just bluff their way through and i mean it's like why is he holding a telephone mm -hmm. and i'm like (laughs) i think they pass themselves off as Telephone repairman. <laughs> and well, then it became clear, and it was like, oh, yeah, that's what's going
1: on. Yeah. Okay, well, okay What would right. the telephone repairman bring in? I mean, if they can't fix it, they got to get you a new one. <laughs> yeah.
2: Also,
0: Kurt Russell, he just has nerd glasses all of a sudden. I don't think those come from anywhere, do they? Like, he, yeah, just, he just had a disguise ready to go. <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And these people who have never seen him before anyways and don't know who he is anyways, <laughs> right. he still puts the glasses on. But, you know, man, what
0: a, it's just a good moment. Like, it's – what a what, I wish – Kurt Russell got a chance to play that character through a movie. That's an awesome
1: character. <laughs> I think all that's in the same spirit of what you're saying, though, where you're saying some of it's muddled and hard to understand. But I think John Carpenter's just moving as fast as he can. I agree through with stuff that. And
0: I think what I always say on this podcast is I'm absolutely fine with those questions not being answered. I just want the filmmaker to somehow cue me into the fact that I'm yeah. not supposed to care. That's fair. Like, tell me. It doesn't matter. I think this movie makes you feel like we're going to spend enough time on it that you're supposed to invest a little bit, but also it's not really clear enough to invest. I mean, by the end, you get it. Lopan is a ancient dude who's kind of a horny old man that wants to have flesh again. And that's all you really need to know. And he's got cool supernatural minions working for him.
1: Yeah, but you never understand who the three storms are related to him, what the gang is related to him. You never understand any of it. How it relates to him. Right.
3: Right. Yeah. I just kind of, I was kind of backfilling, like, well, he clearly helped them g- get their supernatural martial arts powers. And now they're writing his coattails to world domination or something. So I backfilled that myself. Yeah. I was like, oh, I think I know what this is. But it doesn't explain it. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, it's fine. It does make me appreciate the elegance with which a Spielberg or a George Lucas in Star Wars lays in the exposition in such a way that you're never lost and you know exactly what you're supposed to know. And you know exactly, like, well, that garbage monster doesn't. Like,
2: Yeah, and you can say, I can imagine John Carpenter saying, well, this is all from Jack Burton's perspective, and he has no idea, therefore you have no idea, but that feels like a cheat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I think. But uh, All right, well, let's just talk through this bad boy real quick. I think I've got a talk through button. Oh, yes, let's go through the plot. What do we do?
2: Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens.
1: Well, guess what? Now this is happening. Will you allow me to explain?
0: Ah, yes. A perfectly clear audio drop that uh, everyone it definitely is. Everyone understands. So Jack Burton wins a bet with his friend Wang Chi. Kurt Russell is an obnoxious truck driver. He's got a giant mullet. Stop me if there's anything you guys want to talk about. They go to the airport for some reason <laughs> to, <laughs> to, pick,
3: <laughs> to pick up Wang's, Wang's fiancee,
0: fiancee Miao Lin. But unfortunately, the Lords of Death, <laughs> this movie sounds awesome, just describing it, uh, <laughs> try to kidnap another girl. They're actually not even there for Mount Lynn, right?
3: That's what it seems like. They're there for Gracie's
0: friend, I think, if I'm understanding correctly. That's what I gathered this time, yeah. And I'm still confused by who Gracie Law is and why she's there. I love her. I love him. I love Lopan. Just in terms of what I absolutely love about the movie, those three characters who, as you said, they like. they all sort of think that they're cooler than they actually like she kind of thinks she's the lowest lane but she's an idiot he thinks he's john wayne (laughs) but he's the idiot and Lopan starts out as such a creepy kind of ancient evil villain but really he's just a disgusting (laughs) old man (laughs) which is hilarious so jack and wang track the gang to chinatown and then they witness this fight guys who is the coolest of the storms and why this is my deep critical question. Can I you. can
1: I go back to say the coolest of the lords of death? And I guess this is for listeners to go look up. Is the guy with the most impractical sunglasses of all time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank <laughs> so you. Just go find a still image, and oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: That guy's great. Coolest storm, Ben. That's hard. They're all actually pretty fun. I would say they they're all visually distinct, especially when they take off their hats. Mm-hmm. You, you just I don't know. It's but probably I'd go with the guy that blows himself up. Yeah, I mean, he, he, that guy just has screen presence. And when you see him shirtless
0: doing his actual, th- it's like, okay, yeah, this guy's obviously a real.
3: This guy's cool, athlete, and then yeah. he, he's gonna dress up in a suit and pretend to be really Western to mislead the dumb Westerners onto a, a gas trap in an elevator. Yeah, yes. he f- he felt like a very cool second in command, like James right.
0: James Bond type, uh, right. Odd job kind of character. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's my answer,
3: Jake. Raiden. Raiden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because that guy's awesome. Yeah. By the way,
1: yeah, Raiden, Raiden was directly stolen from this, by the way. So that's where Raiden came from, as, if it wasn't obvious enough.
2: Okay. Now I think it's the other way around. I think they anticipated there's Raiden no way to stole him in reverse.
3: Yeah, I wanted him to get a bit of a cooler send-off at the end. I wanted him to have, like, have to have some kind of battle.
0: Yeah, he probably had the lamest villain death yeah. of all
1: of them. Drop a statue on your head. Did you say your answer to this question? I mean, it's lightning. I think has to be. A guy that blows up, I mean, he's cool, but it's obvious that they fed him his lines phonetically right before he said them mm-hmm. every time. He had just phonetic, you know what I'm saying? It, it's The poor guy mm-hmm. obviously does not know a lick of English and, mm-hmm. and they left him out to dry. But he's cool. You know, I love the little cataform he's doing as part of, you know, to entertain Lopan. I think. I don't even mm-hmm. know if it was part of the ceremony. He's just entertaining him. But lightning to me was cool because it's lightning and he's obviously... And what an 80s hit of... 80s and stuff like so many of right. those movies the emperor stuff has that lightning uh-huh. effect that yep. we love from there yeah. so yeah the cartoon lightning that i think they did a great job this time not looking like a cartoon i thought it was wonderful yeah it's cool and yeah. i like
0: how he rides the lightning almost yeah. like it's a fire pole or yeah. something that's a cool idea yeah all right so jack's gonna accidentally run over david lopan the leader of the three storms but he's a creepy magical guy and that he's genuinely kind of spooky when he shows up in that form, mm-hmm. uh, which I like. I wish this movie, it wouldn't be the movie it is if it was this way, but I actually could use a little bit more of that mystic Chinese horror kind of stuff. Like, like Lopan actually can be a pretty creepy villain when he's a floating guy who kind of has a glowing thing inside of him. And I could have used maybe 5% more of that. But uh, yeah, they are heroes escape. The truck is stolen. And then they meet with all our favorite characters, Gracie, Margo, Eddie, and Egg Shen, to plan a rescue mission. This is where Nathan gets a little bogged down trying to figure out the plot, but maybe Nathan's just an idiot. Mao Yin is held in a brothel; They need to break in. Kurt Russell puts on his nerd glasses. And then the Storms... Not the most kid-friendly. No, not the most kid-friendly. Not the most kid-friendly. And then the Storms kidnap Mao Lin and take her to Lo Pan... Jack and Wang have to infiltrate Lopan's business disguised as telephone repairman, but they are captured. And that's some. Of, this is some of my favorite stuff, the torture chamber that they end up in, the yeah. the room of the upside down dead or whatever it's called, the, the place that the elevator takes them to. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of really evocative kind of, mm-hmm. it's yeah. fun, fun to imagine that in, in San Francisco, just beneath the surface, there's this whole other world of danger and intrigue and... Exoticism, I dare say. So, but we hang out with Lopan. We're all low fans. We all like Lopan as a yeah, villain.
1: Yes. I, and the older I get, the more I love him that there is that scary horror aspect to him. Yeah. As a kid, though, the light coming out of his eyes and his mouth really scared me. Mm-hmm. Even though Jack Burton just counteracts with some puddle water real quick and he's fine. But creepy old man Lopan is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, his little toxin, he's just giddy, just giddy at the prospect of falling in love. And so happy. And you can tell quickly, the problem here is not that he's not powerful enough. The, the problem is he's not charming enough. Mm-hmm. And- he feels like such an anime character. Like,
0: I, there's the, the, that uh-huh. character with that voice, with the, those inflections, with those hand movements, just kind of the exaggerated, like, it's how old people are portrayed in like a Japanese. I realize it's two different cultures, folks. I'm not... Mixing them up.
1: Even his, his ceremonial marriage chamber, you know, I used to think that set is so done with the neon. Well, no, he's just a tacky person. Right, you know, yeah. like it's, I, he thinks all this neon stuff looks cool. That's why he's got the neon inside of his ceremonial wedding chamber, is to him, that's like, oh, this is awesome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if you watch this movie, you have to understand that the hero and the villain are idiots. And that is what will help you understand this movie. And if you don't <laughs> get that, then you will be confused and demoralized. Uh, okay, where are we? We're rocketing through this guy. You guys stop me if you want to hit anything. Lopan needs a green-eyed girl to break an ancient curse. And that we save Mao Lin and get out one time with all the captive women that are captive for some reason. And we swim and we shoot guns. And-
2: I would say well, that. Be- before that, all the dudes give us a lot of trouble, but then the women guarding the women... They give nobody any trouble whatsoever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a great big joke. <laughs> Wait, these, here come the women kung fu fighters. Oh, yeah, they're terrible. Yes. <laughs> well,
3: actually, it is, it's harder for Wang. It takes him more time for him to fight one of those women than it does to fight, like, six of the dudes later. So I felt it was it played a little different. I mean, because they spent all this time fighting just a few women guards. But then later, when all the guys from earlier, the gang members from earlier, attack him, he fights them off while Jack yeah, Bird fumbles for his knife.
2: Everything up until then is like, these guys are really dangerous. And then right. the women are like hitting them with their weapons and stuff and like bouncing back. And yeah, <laughs> yeah we feel, you feel like you're getting yeah, the WNBA yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. guards. <laughs> yeah, no, was, that's true. It was funny that it played that way. It, to
1: me, it was very much set up to be a joke. Yeah, it felt like
2: it was of its era for sure.
0: <laughs> and
1: that's another scene where Wang is actually the lead character. He fights... The guards and Jack Burton goes off and unlocks the cages. Right, right. And yeah. So that's yep. another scene that establishes who the actual Lee character is. Right. And-
0: yeah. It just. I think one thing that maybe confused people about this movie is that Jack Burton always runs in first, and so he looks. He just looks like the hero. I mean, he literally is dressed like a hero, and he he thinks of himself as a hero. So he bumbles in beforehand, brandishing his guns and strikes a hero pose. And if you're not paying attention or clued into what the movie's doing, it can. It can actually confuse you. And so, all right, where are we? So basically, we're going to get out, but we still don't have Mao, Lin, and Lopin's going to sacrifice her. And so we have to interrupt the wedding and do a thing. So they go underground. They go through a cool sewer set. They get attacked by a monster that I wish we'd seen a little bit more of. That monster was cool. Yeah. The tunnel. Monster, whatever. The tunnel
1: oh, troll. It's one of the best jokes in the whole movie, though, right? I mean, where Egg Shen throws the thing and says, "You come back here no more," and Jack Prince says, "What? What will we'll come back here no more?"
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, is that are we talking about the different monsters? Not yeah. Or we're talking about the
0: monster and the thing that comes out of the that grabs a guy that comes out of oh, okay. the sewer. I,
3: it's, I thought it was a giant bug thing. Yeah, it's like a giant bug. Oh, okay, of, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 He said tunnel troll and I got confused. Uh, yep, Cause, cause, that was me. I was. the one Oh, was okay, okay. Because that they the were other... on the same page, and then I realized I, gotcha. I was on a different page. So who's the tunnel troll? It's the one that stows away in his truck. At
0: oh, the end. okay, yeah. That that monster is probably the most earnest, scared, stupid monster of <laughs> of
1: all of them. I love it's, them. A, it's harmless and sweet too. Really, if you think if it doesn't hurt the girl, I'm saying leaves before the other guys come in. It's a really, it's a really well trained pet. That's yeah, what it is. I'm <laughs> not.
0: I'm not feeling too much danger for Jack Burton at the end. <laughs> So um,
1: something I do want to go back and get Nathan is uh, when they're drinking their liquid cocaine. Yes. I'm convinced it is. Is this <laughs> they dedicate the whole thing to America really quick mm-hmm. for some reason? And so the, the yeah. quote here is Wang says, "Here's to the army and navy and the battles they have won. Here's to America's colors, <laughs> the colors that never <laughs> the, run, the colors these colors never run." <laughs> and yeah. Jack Burton says, uh, "My favorite Fourth of July quote: May the wings of liberty never lose a feather." And then they go <laughs> battle in <drive>
0: China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> we haven't said it but the guy that plays Wang he does a good job Wang's a good character yeah uh, yeah, and, yep. and fun and like I don't
3: know what to say about him but I was, was trying to think where I'd seen him but I'm not sure if ha, have I? Yeah, I, don't,
1: I know. don't know that I know him from anything else but he, he does a great yeah. job being kind of wide eyed and and wholesome and uh-huh.
0: yeah it feels like he should have been in one of the Spielberg classics or something like he has that kind of energy yeah to him. he does he yeah too old to be a goonie but he could have appeared in something very, like, right?
2: got the same energy as short round yeah Uh cast him as his dad or something like that
0: yeah exactly so i guess we're already to the final battle which i was making fun of some of the choreography and stuff but it's cool i mean it's a great set the skull the kind of he-man look of it all the neon the the floating the escalator like (laughs) first i thought lopan was doing a cool mystical floating kind of thing but it's just an escalator that comes out of the skull (laughs) and oh man that face creature with the eye yeah, tongue it's awesome is an awesome practical effect i love that creature and the fact that jack <laughs> shoots at it and, and or whatever or throws does he throw his knife oh, at he it
1: shoots at it twice you never know till you try yeah you, you never know, know till you try <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about that special effect to me and, and these are just things that the more i that at one point you know low pants communicating through this floating head thing Mm-hmm. And when lowpan starts laughing maniacally, the Guardian kind of smiles a little bit. Yeah. You know, that whatever lowpan's emotions are, the Guardian takes on a more subtle form of that emotion. And it's somehow it's disgusting and kind of cute at the same time. And it's, that's a tough balance to strike.
0: Yeah. It strikes me as I think about it, the special effects in this movie are really good. I mean, I know that's obvious, but when you actually compare it to something like Ghostbusters, where mm-hmm. you can see a lot of matte lines and it's just obvious that like, they're cool. Everything in Ghostbusters is really cool and has all that 80s kind of feel that you want. but. You can always kind of tell with Gozer and some of that stuff, like the dog creatures, the dog Gozer, I forget. But yeah. it's like, that's not really there in the same shot. Everything is really well integrated in this movie. I mean, there's you can still see the seams, which is part of the charm of these kinds of practical special effects. We wouldn't have it any other way, or at least I wouldn't. But it's actually much more seamless than even some of the classics, even than certain things in Temple of Doom or, or things like that. And special effects are just... Really good. And I'm remembering that this particular studio, the thing that they did that ILM didn't do is they shot their special effects on 60 millimeter film, a much bigger film, because with special effects at the time, you're going to optically combine everything in like a film printer, which means you're going to degrade the film every time you put stuff together. Mm -hmm. Special effects scenes in classic practical effects movies are often a little grainier and more degraded than... Other scenes in the movie because they have to to be so processed so many times, and every time you make a copy of something, you downgrade it a little bit pre digital. But these special effects, they start them out shot on sixty millimeter, which means they start out so much more high quality that they can actually degrade down to Hmm. something that is cool. And so, yeah, mad props to the special effects in this movie. That's if you like practical effects or gooey creature designs or like like you were saying, Joe, just cool sets. This is this movie should be your jam. A lot of cool stuff like that. Good skeletons. I like a movie with, a, mm-hmm. with some juicy skeletons in it. And this movie's got plenty of them. Anything to say about the final battle? Uh, cool, cool send-offs for our villains. I like Jack Burton's knife trick. I like that he screws it up the first time, and Gracie gives him a look, and but then he manages to pull it off. And poor Lopan assumed corporeal form just in time <laughs> to, to die. die. <laughs> <laughs> tend to be a thing with these kinds of villains, but uh, this, is Thunder just mad? Is that is that why he dies? Is he just like oh my boss is dead and then he's like ah and he yeah like there's he just kills himself right
3: right <laughs>
2: that's all. It's really hard for me to understand. Like it's like a trick that he used earlier in the movie in order right. to gain power, and so it's like is he. Going to try to max this out and go too far, or is he angry? Or like, I have no idea.
3: Yeah, to me it just felt like kind of a joke. Like he just lost self control. He was so mad that his boss was dead. Instead of being able to effectively just fight off the guys, he just kills himself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he loses his temper.
3: I'm sorry, Joe. I know. I know. What you're saying. I, I just
1: hate it so much. I, as a kid, those kinds of practical special effects are more disturbing. If you can give me the most realistic looking thing in the world and it would not bother me as much as that bothers
0: So like me. a arm getting cut off or a decapitation or something, that doesn't bother you, but a, a guy. Oh, and it all
1: bothers me, but that like, I am i can't do gore at all. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, you know, like in the movie, Nacho Libre, where mm-hmm. the guy gets the, the stalk of corn stuck in his eyeball. Yeah. Like, it's like, what is that doing in that movie? Th- this kind of feels like that same thing of like an overly gory thing in a movie that was not really gory or bloody until then. And as a kid, it just really bothered me. <laughs> um,
2: I, I'm going to say that it's of a piece <laughs> with the movie and you just have a childhood thing with that uh, particular, because it did, it felt really fast and done really quick it, from it, my perspective. It's yeah. totally, it's it's a me Coming thing. to it fresh. Right. It's amazing.
1: I'm the only person who feels this way about that scene. But it, uh, okay. when I say it's my least favorite movie scene of all time, I really mean it. I, I hate that scene. How but, do you feel um,
0: about the Nazis being fried at the end of Raiders?
1: Well, I think the good guys won and the bad guys lost. All okay, right, that's yeah, that's always good. <laughs> um, not a big fan of the Nazis, huh? Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the more I learn about him, the less I like him. Right? <laughs> that guy melting there at the end doesn't bother me for whatever reason. Like this bothers me. Huh. This really, as a, kid, I think it just one of the, it's just one of those things where when you're a kid, certain things just hit you weird. Yeah, 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 I know. And it's stuck with me.
0: Is it the cheeks? Is it like the shot of the face, or is it? It's
1: the shot of the face specifically. Yeah, okay. that really bothers me. But I'm the only person that feels this way about, about it. It's not funny to me. It's just gross, but it's just, it's a me thing.
0: I mean, the thing that I love about it is the wonderfully lame Looney Tunes straight ahead shot of chunks of viscera just blow up, <laughs> blowing
1: into the hallway <laughs> uh, is hilarious. <laughs> I think what it is is how uncomfortable he looks. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. It's just the disco. It's okay. So the blueberry girl, maybe this is a thing in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory.
0: You're just afraid of being... Not blown up, like exploded, but we're afraid
1: of gaining too much weight. I think
0: we're getting into some real childhood trauma. Yeah, yeah, did you ever see Monty Python, the life, not the life of Brian, the last one, the meaning of life? I didn't know. There's a scene where they do the same thing. A guy gets fed a lot of food and he gets fatter and fatter and then he explodes. And it's a very similar special effect. It also reminds me of the end of Total Recall, if anyone's familiar with it. Oh, I, I hate that scene too, it's yeah, kind of where they're on Mars and their oh, faces yeah. are puffing up. And yeah, it's pretty yeah, disturbing, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah. It just looks so painful. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, may no one doing this podcast ever blow up into a giant person and then finger exploit.
1: management before you do that. Yes.
0: Okay, so yeah, the goop was cornered by Lightning, and then Lightning has kind of a lame death for all his buildup, but everybody else has a good death. And we go back, we celebrate at Wang's restaurant. Jack Thinks he's in the searchers or something like that, so he's not going to be with Gr- <laughs> Gracie. He's going to. He's,
2: <laughs> <laughs> he's got to walk up into the sunset for some reason. <laughs> Nobody cares. That's a good pull. He thinks it, he's in the searchers. Yeah, I like that.
0: I mean, he really—he just believes he's been John Wayne this whole time. It's like, well, I saved the day. Now I walk into the sunset. Obviously, I can't have the girl. <laughs> but she'll pine for me. It's like I mean, Gracie's not going to spend too much time pining for you, dude. That's a great. It's a great dialogue, though, right? Aren't you going to kiss the girl? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're great together. We haven't said
2: that. We'll see. Yeah. Is is that his line? He just says, "Nope." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm no. Just... But she says something. Oh, he'll come back. He says, "We'll see." Yeah. They, yeah, they we'll leave see. it open for the yeah. You never right. something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. You never can tell. I think it's what. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I think like that. that's it. Um, yeah, they 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 do a nice Tracy Hepburn kind of. The, they're fun together, and the dialogue in this movie is good. So yeah. Anything else you guys want to hit from the plot or individual moments, things that you love, Joe, from your childhood? Or I love the spinning fork, really cheesy when the guy has the weapons on the palms of his hands and they they do a windmill <laughs> thing. I'm sure there are other cool moments I could think of, but
1: yeah, it's a fun movie. I love that he gets his truck back. That's actually where all this ends. Yes is he gets his truck back in the end. And that is that is his love, right? Mm -hmm. So Wang had his girlfriend kidnapped and so did Jack Burton, which was his truck. His truck, yeah. It's like the cowboy
0: getting his horse back. I'm sure that's what was in the- Yeah, yeah. And so it
1: really doesn't end with him getting the girls back. It really ends with him finding his truck. And to me, that's good enough for him, right? Yep.
2: Yeah, Brandy, you're such a fine girl.
1: Yep. Oh, another Kurt
3: Russell play.
2: Yeah. Hmm? Life is love is the sea. It's (laughs) the road.
3: That's right.
0: It's the road, yeah. I mean, it is- Fun to
2: okay, Jack
0: Burton's now a truck driver again. He's gonna go <laughs> deliver some what does he deliver? What's, I don't know. What's the <laughs> he, pork he, he, Express. Boy, it's the Port chop Express. Yeah. yeah he, so he's just
1: a he's just a food service like delivery a, a man. Food service deliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: that's yeah, one of those movies that I, I do like it a lot. I think it's a good movie. I would I recommend it to our listeners. If it's if it sounds like the kind of thing you'd enjoy, you'd probably enjoy it. I am sort of with Ben though in that it's kind of more fun to talk about than it is to actually watch. Like it's a it's a pretty good watch, but it's a really fun movie to think about, oh, that's so funny what they were doing and Kurt Russell is so funny.
2: It's me? definitely one of those things that I think we said at the top or maybe I did or whatever, context really matters. So if you grew up loving it, it's going to be a thing. I if can definitely, yeah, I can have definitely some understand some why this is a for For drug. this mm-hmm. exact, very specific drug, mm-hmm. you can come to it fresh as an adult maybe. Um, and if you don't have either of those two things, you may just be like, What in the world am I doing watching this piece of 80s trash? I don't get it and I don't care. Like, I can see a lot of people coming away from this discussion thinking, Oh, this was a fun discussion. I'm going to go watch this movie and being like, What in the world? I really resent that. <laughs> but you might still give like, it
0: a shot because if you're on its wavelength,
2: it might be your favorite It might movies, be really yeah. fun. So, but it's just going to be like context matters a yeah. lot. And so I can see somebody, one of the younger members of our audience who, Hit this nostalgia through the lens of Stranger Things, and has no taste for the actual article, the actual drug, mm-hmm. you know, that's being ripped off and popified by stri- and cleaned up and twenty teensified. Going back to the real thing and being like, yeah, no, not at all. That's, like I, I like I like Coldplay, but I don't like the Beatles, right? You know? Which is bad, but stupid.
1: But <laughs> sorry,
2: but true. But those people exist. Yeah, what were you gonna say, Joe?
1: That's, I think that's just how this almost always works. Is, is people do want the updated version of it that's tuned to their sensibilities, and, and you can't blame people. We are programmed to watch things in a certain way, mm-hmm. you know. And you go back and things feel super slow. I mean, I remember going back and watching the original Star Wars, which is a, a perfect movie, but feels really weird and slow for the first twenty thirty minutes. It's just kind of bizarre with the robots just walking through the desert. And you're like, "What am I watching? I don't remember this at all." And and it's good enough to where like my eight year old son can watch it, and he liked it. It's because it's just really good. But it is hard to go against the sensibilities you've been programmed to have and go back and experience something like that, the real thing. You Mm -hmm. know? I mean there's a reason why they update these things. Yeah.
2: I think that's well and one of the problems you bring up Star Wars, one of the problems with Star Wars is Star Wars, in order to capture the feeling you had as a kid watching it, has to reinvent itself. And Mm -hmm. if they don't understand that, if the directors and the producers don't understand that, you end up with something really stupid and lame.
0: Yeah. I think it's good to be able to have the vocabulary to understand a broader context of things because then you have more to enjoy. If you allow yourself to watch enough black and white movies or 80s movies or whatever so that you can be like, okay, I can be on this wavelength. I can slow down a little bit and vibe with this. I can speed up a little bit and vibe with this. I can vibe with this style of dialogue, this style of acting. I think you'll get more enjoyment that way because then there's more things that you can like and you don't have to wait for somebody to make the version that Plays to your sensibilities. So I do think that there's a sense in which that's the way of maturation. But also, if you don't have time for that, and that's not a big deal to me, it's just movies at the end of the day. It's just movies at the end of the day. Be- what, what kind of totem should we use? Let's see. I feel like that should be obvious, but I'm having trouble. How many pork chops out of 40 in Jack Burton's truck do you give Two. Big Trouble in Little China as our resident hater? As your resident hater, I'll give it 20. 20. All right, we'll save Joe for last because his point of view on is important. What am I going to give it? I will give it 30. I think it was a solid, fun flick. I think it holds up well. And uh, like we said, if people like it, they will really like it. I think there are things that are unentertaining. The muddle of the plot, the mm, sort of- It's a bit of a mess. Lame, ongoing, ongoing martial arts scenes that just have been so thoroughly surpassed. So there's, there's enough things that kind of keep it from being a Stone Cold classic. It's not if I don't think most of our listeners will hit it as if they're discovering another true Amblin classic or something like that. But it's a fun movie. And Kurt Russell is so fun. He's the man. He's the man. Like we said, Lopan and Gracie Law. And if I didn't say it already, I think I did already sort of say it. But I just want to say the line. Don't worry. It's me. Gracie Law as if anyone should care or know who Gracie Law is. Because like, if she's the most important, it's her movie, actually. Yeah. It's just a bunch of characters who think the movie's about them. Yeah. And it's actually not. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, Gracie Law's a good character. So that's my favorite line of dialogue from the movie.
2: Jake, how many? Uh, 30. 30. I had it picked beforehand. I'm sticking to it, even though it's what you picked. I'm not going to deviate. I think it's a solid 30 out of 40. I had a lot of fun watching it. I have no need to ever go back and watch it again, but I don't think I would resent it If it got picked or got thrown on and it'd be a fun movie to watch if Joe was in town again in a couple of years and we wanted to hang out and watch it, that would be a fun watch. So I'd something j- like that. What's your number?
1: Let's say if, if we're talking about a six demon bag, mm-hmm. I would give it five out of six demons. Five out of six demons. Yeah. Wow. I think it's one of the most quotable movies. Mm-hmm. As I get older, I miss ambition in film like this. Yeah, It's trying to mm-hmm. do too much. It's not a perfect movie. I'm not even sure it's a great movie. But I appreciate the ambition and I appreciate that they hit more than they
0: miss. Yeah, they're actually trying to do something. That's a great point. You know what? I'm going to give it three extra pork chops just for, you've convinced me, 33 pork chops for this
2: film. Because
0: yeah, even in the places where it sucks, it's really trying to do something. And that's- It's
2: never lazy. Yeah, it's never lazy. I don't think it even, like we talk about how many, we were talking about the villain does and this is a constant criticism that we have of any movie with villains, like no thought goes into, you know, how the hero defeats the villain, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. how the villain dies. Is it appropriate to the character? Is it appropriate to any number of other things? Like in everything every aspect of this movie does feel
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like setups and pay- we it's set just up
2: not, there's no there's no lazy part of it. It feels thoughtful. Jack Burton
0: has one intention reflex skill. We set it up at the beginning. It just feels like a throwaway thing. And then he can't do anything else, right? Right. <laughs> but He's got this one thing and it kills Lopan and Lopan (laughs) deserves to be killed by the side pick of the sidekick of the movie because Lopan actually sucks and (laughs) like it's it he deserves to be killed by Jack Burton who can't even throw a knife straight for the most part
3: well the best that's that has my favorite line of dialogue or my favorite little interchange which is it's like Jack Burton always says who me Jack Burton. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>...
2: <laughs> I, I do want to say
0: if you think John Wayne, you will hear the fact that I didn't. He is I didn't think just, that at all. But so now I so totally in the hear rhythm it. of yeah. par- I, I can't do a John Wayne to save my life apparently. But if you think of the rhythms of how John Wayne breaks up his sentences, that's just Jack Burton. Uh, the other thing I want to say, real quick, is if you do watch Snake Plissken, the hero from Escape from New York and Escape from L.A., and the character that Carpenter play or that Russell, Russell, Russell plays in The Thing, they're all different gradations of these masculine archetypes, and they're all clever in the way that they subvert them
3: all different yeah all different all different like russell plays a different register every time yeah but they all if you weren't paying attention you'd just be like there's russell
0: crowe doing his hero thing three times (laughs) or yeah if you really weren't paying attention (laughs) like you were legally blind (laughs) 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 man that's a weird thing for my brain to do i guess it's not they both have (laughs) russell in their name they both do (laughs) so yeah, yeah you might be forgiven for thinking there's kurt russell just uh being a hero again, but it, he's actually a very good actor and very clever in his the way that he subverts masculine archetypes, which was still an interesting thing to do back in the 80s. So yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about one of those movies sometime. But uh, yeah, this was fun. Thank you, Joe, for being our non- yeah, jo- inaugural. This was fun. Joe is not a racist, folks. If any of you are wondering, he did not actually give us... I know most of the people listening are like, yeah, Joe gave a 40-minute sermon on r- racial things to the guys before we started recording the podcast but it's not true it was what guys 25 minutes at 27 Uh, not not more than not more than yeah Uh, and it made a lot of good points no i'm just kidding
1: (laughs) (laughs) um, i appreciate you making me feel so welcome and making sure that my one shot to have a reputation built with your audience you you solidified it, you know? <laughs>
4: yeah, no, you have a reputation for sure.
0: Uh, no, Joe's a great guy. He's a good sport. We're glad to have him on. Maybe he can come back sometime and talk about another. Uh, here, Joe, if you were going to do another movie with us, and I'm not making any promises, what would that movie be? Easy. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That'd be fun. That'd be fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. I've wondered whether we don't want to redo those movies sometime. But uh, now we have to talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny next week. So,
1: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, they couldn't think of a worse title, and so they went with that one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. <sighs> it's going to be great. Jake, we have to talk sometime about our experience watching the fourth one together in the theater. Did we see it together in the We theater? saw it together in the theater. Oh, wow. And Jake has no recollection of anything we've ever done together. But, <laughs> but Joe has perfect recollection yeah, 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 of yeah. everything we've ever done And we were both livid walking out of the theater. Livid. Like so. just angry at the movie? Yeah, it was, because The Last Crusade is my favorite movie probably ever. It's a great movie. And and four was, I mean, it's, there's movies I dislike, but I'm never angry unless my hopes are up. You can't hate something unless you loved it first. And, mm-hmm. and I hate the fourth Indiana Jones movie.
0: I will say this. On Disney+, Plus. if you watch it right now, they have color corrected it. They have regraded the color timing so that it is oh. color timed like an old Indiana Jones movie. They've taken out the kind of standard modern, we make everything look yellow and blah color timing and i'm not gonna say it makes it a great movie if you hate it the first time you'll still hate it but man it does actually make it feel a lot more like an indiana jones piece. movie yeah huh. you're like this looks kind of like an indiana jones movie and that's interesting just all I in the, gotta do now is rewrite it yeah all, all we need now is a new script new Christ. characters a new adventure a new thing for him to go after yeah, sounds like we should actually do a podcast where we talk about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But then mm. we have to do a podcast where we talk about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal
2: Skull. What we're going to do is a podcast where we talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, wherein we talk about Crystal Skull and everything else.
0: Yeah. Well, what we're not going to do is be like,
2: man, Crystal
0: Skull sure seems great. And we're not going to do that crappy revisionism <laughs> thing People, where they're like...
2: No, the prequels are genuinely... Have their points. Yeah, and they also have they're their problems, which we've to, never Real problems, but yeah. yeah. But
0: Crystal Skull is... It's got maybe a set piece and a half that are fun. and mm-hmm. Something like that. Mm, it's bad. It is bad. It's mean. The most resistance I would get is I'd say Nuke the Fridge is actually maybe a good scene.
3: I like that one. I always did. Yeah. I always liked the first 10 minutes or whatever that movie.
0: I was hey. less
1: mad when you accused me of racism. Than then when I said Nuke the Fridge is a, a good scene. scene yeah.
0: It's a good setup. It's silly the way he gets out of it. But when he's in the creepy 1950s
2: town. Yeah, all town, of that. It's fine until he jumps into the fridge and gets blown across the, the <laughs> desert. I, I thought that was cool too, but the, you know, I don't know. The raft scene is stupid too. So,
0: yeah. oh my gosh, yes. You mean from Temple or from? From Temple. Because this one, because they actually do a Kingdom of Crystal Skull raft scene that sucks yes, even worse. It is even worse. I can't even remember
2: it. They just go over like 10 waterfalls in a car.
0: That's why I don't remember it, because yeah. it was boring. It's after that stupid CGI. Scene that should be awesome. The big the jungle, yeah, the, jungle the jungle chase. The jungle chase. Yeah. That scene is terrible where too. Shia
1: LaBeouf is swinging like a monkey through the trees with yeah, with other right.
0: monkeys, with an army of monkeys that he leads to take down the Russians.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: Also, there's a part where Indiana Jones says Russians and then doesn't say I hate these guys because we can't say that anymore because it's too ethnocentric. And Russians are great. Uh, I don't know. You could probably say it now. Yeah, I guess you could. It's too bad. It's too,
1: it's too bad too <laughs> bad it's too bad that it's just you too bad. Yet. <laughs> plus, too bad. can
0: still put this in get Harrison Ford to just say I hate these guys or pull the audio alright we must be done thank you for joining us Joe it was a pleasure it was a joy it was a lot of fun yeah thanks for inviting me I had a lot of fun yeah it was good to have you until next time it's gonna take Cracker Jack timing wing